The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey guys, this is Matt Seidel, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frogs. From the Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping a Strong Style, the ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy Josh Smith on today's show, we'll be reviewing the first two nights of the G1 Climax 30, answering your questions, and covering all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network or to Keeping a Strong Style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving us a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping a Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by Manscaped, who is best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over the technology development to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SUPLEX at manscaped.com. That's 20% off. With free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code SUPLEX. Young boy, how you doing, man? It's a new day. Yes, it is. <laughs> We're recording, right? Yes, sir. No mishaps this week. No, sir. No, no yacht. <laughs> nice, man. I'm excited. Uh, it's another G1 season and we are already in the midst of it. So I am... Uh, you know, completely enthused and uh, very excited and uh, things of that nature. I, I've been told recently I say things of that nature a lot. I didn't I don't even know that I say it, but apparently, yes, you, you know, G1 and <laughs> you say <it> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like something I've never, ever noticed about, you know, my uh, vernacular. So uh, I'm just going to double down. I'm going to say it a lot this episode. That's all right. I say uh, apparently I say, oh, my gosh, a lot. So. Do you, yeah, I guess you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but man, we got a jam-packed episode. A lot to discuss. A lot we, you know, we were on a marathon last week. Uh, I think between you, me, and uh, Sam, so we probably could have done easily like four or five hours if we really were given the a lot of time to do so. Right. Yeah, we could have gone all night long, man. All night long. <laughs> all night. <laughs> we could have gone. Broad, I was listening gone to Broadway. Uh, Huh? So we could have gone Broadway. Yeah, uh, we we basically we did. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to uh, Observer recently. They had uh, Rich Swan on there, and he was talking about how him and Ricochet came up with the idea of coming out to All Night Long by uh, Lionel Richie, which is pretty funny. 
Yeah, I have to check that out. I saw that that was on there. I haven't looked to it yet. Oh man, I've been so behind with work and different things like that. I'm behind on all the podcasts, but I'm finally all caught up on all the Observer stuff uh, just in time for G1, which is good. But uh, yeah, I can't wait to uh, get into this stuff, man. Yeah, let's dive into it. So, of course, we uh, watch G1 using the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit NJPWEXT.us today for details. Danny putting in work. Great new Zoom-like feature for the watch parties. Um, so now you could use the same code for your watch parties going forward. You don't have to set up a bunch of different links. Uh, really easy to use. So go ahead and check out that that new watch party feature on the extension. Absolutely. So I um, want to start off here our G1 talk from a question from Reddit user PSAN91. Uh, says, I was live at night one of G1 Climax and had a great time. Fantastic show from start to finish with every match ranging from good to excellent. Anyway, my question is, how did the crowd reaction come across in the live stream? Being there live in the 1F stand balcony seats, it seemed people were way into every match and people were stomping their feet on the balcony and really getting creative with the chance, like uh, Ho of Okada and Ibushi match, the crowd were stomping their feet to the Ibushi chant. I'm just wondering how it came across for you guys on the live stream as the crowds in the building seemed really attentive and into the show from start to finish, which really added to my overall enjoyment of the show. So, young boy, what did you think about this Osaka crowd for uh, night one here at G1? You know, I think that, um, and we've talked in depth over the past, you know, few months, ever since uh, New Japan returned, what the situation really entailed when it came to the lack of chance. And then when the app was, you know, uh, introduced with the artificial sound and everything. And I think that there's been a bit of a learning curve when it comes to different crowds, as far as, um, how they could express their reactions and, and, you know, approval or disapproval when it comes to the wrestling without actually being able to verbalize it. Um, I would say, I would go as far as to say that on this evening, uh, night one and night two, actually so far of the G1, by far the best crowd uh, reactions as, as far as like how they um, incorporate the stomps and incorporate the clapping and obviously very respectful crowds are still not chanting, you know, per the uh, requests of management, which is great. Um, early on, it just, and, and you know, I don't know if it has something to do with the fact that these crowds had a larger capacity and maybe that has something to do with it. But I mean, they were enthusiastic, and I mean, you could really tell because if you l- watch the opening matches with, like, say, the Young Lions, very little reaction. I mean, still respectful, but, like, everything kind of ramped up all throughout the night. Once the G1 matches started, you know, the, the early matches, which were almost like preliminary warm-up matches, uh, some reaction. But then as the night got on and on and bigger stars, bigger matches were kind of uh, introduced on both nights – because uh, keep in mind, night one and night two are both always big nights of G1 because of the introductions for the blocks. The crowds just seemed to be on fire, and it didn't hurt. For the first time, it felt like it didn't hurt at all that the crowds couldn't chant. In fact, I liked these crowd reactions better than, say, at the Summer Struggle you know, Stadium show or some of the other Corkins where they were allowed to even use the cheer app. I preferred this. Um, would I like for them to be able to chant? Sure. 
Um, I, I don't know that I ever caught on that they were chanting along with any certain or you know uh, clapping and stomping along with any particular chants. I didn't catch that. I don't know if you did, but regardless, it was still such a lively crowd, and I think that it helped a lot. I mean, again, it would still be better if people could actually chant, especially when it comes to heat. But overall, the atmosphere is just electric for both nights. Yeah, I, I love the atmosphere. The crowds were totally into it. Um, I did notice the, the Ibushi kind of clapping, uh, ZSJ, Tanahashi. So a lot of the bigger stars definitely had. They were kind of clapping to their names. Um, we saw mm. you know, Juice Robinson doing some innovative um, clapping with the We Will Rock You type of chants. And so, yeah, the crowd was just eating everything up. Like you said, there was, once the G1 matches started, like, you can just feel like the energy even rise after the Young Lion matches. They were... And I think the Osaka crowd is really good because I remember during the Dominion show for Osaka, they were really lively and energetic for that show as well. So it just seems like the Osaka crowd, like they're really they get really into the shows and find creative ways with the claps and really do the best they can to give their energy. Gotcha. So for like for Ibushi, it was like bop bop bop. Right. Bop bop bop. And for like Tanahashi, it'd be like go ace. So it pop 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 pop. Right. Go ace. Go Ace. Okay, I I I'd have to. I'm not going to rewatch these anytime soon. I don't uh, anticipate because we got a lot on the plate. But uh, I'll I'll keep that in mind for future shows that we're going to be watching because I think that's probably going to be a a bit of a trend that other fans pick up on, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So let's start talking about these matches here. So we'll start here with night one. Was one of the things you want to? Well, I was going to ask you. So I'm looking at the run sheet. We've got reviews of the first two nights. Are we going to be doing a quick preview of the uh, third, fourth, and fifth night upcoming? Because I didn't see that on the road, on the sheet, and I think it's important we do at least briefly discuss kind of our, you know, the stories and stuff. Yeah, that's a good call there. Yeah, I totally missed putting that on the rundown. But yeah, let's talk about the first two nights, and then we'll do previews for uh, the next coming up nights here for this week. Sure. So starting off with night one, so we have the uh, unofficial C-block action here opening off night one where we have Yuya Mora defeating Yota Suji, six minutes and 57 seconds. What do you think about this one? Well, man, you know, we're talking about the A-block, the B-block, but what we completely forgot to mention last week is the prestigious C-block. And this year it's even simpler than most years because there's – not going to be any uh, undercard tags. It's just singles matches. And, you know, the three guys that are mathematically eligible to win the C block, Yuya Yamura, Yota Suji, and Gabriel Kidd. It's almost an unofficial uh, Young Lions Cup, which I'm, I'm really digging that aspect of what we're getting for some of these opening nights. Um, you know, I, I think it would be smart just to even discuss both you know, openers. We had Yuya Moore and Yotasuji first uh, night, and then we had Yotasuji and Gabriel Kidd. Um, first thoughts I have: Yotasuji looks really great, but he needs a beard, man. He <laughs> needs a beard. He looks crazy without that, without facial hair. Yeah, man, came out here clean shaven, looking like you know, straight up baby face. I, I guess he wants to look like, look, look like his idol, Tanahashi. You know, clean shaven. <laughs> well, he'll never look like Tanahashi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really digging the clean shaven. I prefer the you know the beard, the goatee gimmick that he he's normally been doing. Yotasuji gives me more like Ricky Choshu or like uh, uh, Yoshihiro Takayama vibes, like with just the way he looks. Like it, he, you know, 
it's kind of one of those things. Like some wrestlers, they 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 idolize wrestlers of a different style and stature and everything. And I know he loves Tanahashi, but like this this man's a bruiser. He's not a storyteller. <laughs> no, nah, this man gonna be in high fly flows one day. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I, I'll say this. Um, as a fan of sports centric style wrestling, we've always praised the Young Lions, and we'll continue to do so. I think all three of these guys have their work cut out for them. Um, you know, kind of just being the opening act on G1 cards, which is pretty awesome that they're kind of getting that uh, light shined on them. I, I'm sure. Th- I mean, obviously they open all the time, but I mean, th- th- this is a bit bigger than you know road to you know just road (laughs) (laughs) but i thought all three guys looked good yoda suji picked up the first win on the first night against yu yamura uh in a pretty dominant clean decisive fashion fashion yamura got the win first night is that not what i said i thought you said uh suji got the win i might have i messed up yeah so yamura picks up the win here which um at first glance might have been a little surprising but it's a long you know (laughs) tour so i'm sure this is going to go back and forth but he did it relatively quick fashion six minutes 57 seconds which was pretty cool yeah he used almost say a lion tamer version of the boston crab there very high angle boston crab cranking down that thing forcing suji to tap out yep uh very impressed with that i actually watched the post-match uh interviews and afterwards yumora said that he has some new things that he would like to introduce and try out and I was watching it, and I was like, oh, cool. He's going to do some new moves. He's like, now I know what you're thinking. New moves. It's not new moves. It's just something else that's different that I want to try out. So I have no clue what this man's talking about. Um, but, yeah, Suji uh, eats a big loss the first night, comes into the second night against Gabriel Kidd. Those two have been kind of beefing since the previous tour. You know, the L.A. Dojo, uh, you know, Tokyo Dojo kind of rivalry going there. And uh, Suji shows his dominance on the first night. Um Defeating Gabriel Kidd, a bit longer match, 9 minutes, 15 seconds. He also won with a very strong Boston Crab. And uh, post-match, Suji actually offered an apology to Gabriel Kidd for some of the remarks he made on the previous tour. How, you know, it's not really Gabriel's Gabriel Kidd's... Um, it's not really up to him whether he's here or whether he's in Japan. And he thanked him for being on the tour and, like, looked forward to, you know, the round-robin matches that these three guys are going to have together. So, um... You know, big things on, on the cusp for all of these guys. I think they all look good, and I can't wait to see, you know, Gabriel Kidd against Seymour, which is probably next. Yeah, and so I know with Suji's comments, I know he's been kind of lobbying for, you know, Young Lions Cup to come back. And, and like you mentioned, those promos, he was kind of saying, you know, we can't do it without all the LA Dojo. We can't do it without the Fall LA Dojo. And, you know, he apologized to Kidd and thanked him for being there. And so very interesting to see if we will get some kind of Young Lions Cup down the line once – and get some of the other young lines from other dojos in. But yeah, it's going to be very interesting to just see how this rivalry goes. Because uh, I know definitely with the LA Dojo, New Japan Dojo, Suji kind of makes it his goal, especially as a captain, try and defeat the LA Dojo guys. I, I honestly doubt they're going to do anything like that very uh, in the in the near future. Because, I mean, look at the last two tournaments they did. Uh, you know, uh, Kitamura won that, and he was being propelled into a stardom singles role obviously that didn't work out but that was the whole purpose of the tournament most recent one carl fredericks and he almost immediately was uh you know graduated off you know right off of that so i only anticipate them really doing something like that when they're ready to like strap the rocket to somebody which might not be for a little while because still a relatively young 
you know, um, two classes or three classes, what have you. Right. But let's uh, let's get into the the depth of these uh, block matches, starting with the A block. Yeah, so first A block match we had Will Ospreay defeating Yujiro Takahashi seven minutes and forty four seconds. Yeah, um, a little surprised uh, um, watching the match. I wouldn't say that it felt overly long, but it didn't feel short either to me. I mean, it felt like they got quite a bit of time to get their stuff in. Um, so to hear that it was only a seven minute plus match was, a, that's a little surprising to me. Um, the big question going into this match was we've been seeing Ujiro, you know, ever since new Japan's return, but we haven't really seen will Osprey unless people have been checking out, you know, the two red pro epic encounter shows. So, uh, looking at his, uh, social media, he's just been looking like this Mastodon, this giant Jack dude. So I was, I wasn't sure what to expect. He came in, he looked phenomenal. Um, he didn't look overly big. He definitely put on size, but um, I mean, he looked like his frame was totally filled out. He didn't lose a step whatsoever. I was very impressed with Will Osprey in this match. Yeah, man. This yeah, this was my probably my favorite Udrow match of this uh, pandemic era. Uh, Will came out there, like you mentioned, not missing a beat. You know, a lot of people were wondering if he's going to be able to do all the high flying with. The muscle put on and definitely was still doing the handspring and kicks to his running shooting stars at the pip pip cheerio. Uh, you know, all his kind of signature high flying spots he was doing here and looked really good in this match. And I just thought, you know, came out with a lot of energy and yeah, just proving why he's just one of the best wrestlers in the world. And just really, I know it was like a seven minute match, but I don't know. I really enjoyed this match. I thought it was a great way to open uh, the show. He freaking killed Yujiro with the yes. hidden blade. Oh my gosh, I jumped off the couch when he did that. Yeah, he hit him with that hidden blade to the face, and like right after that goes directly into the uh, what's his finish called? The Stormbreaker. Yeah, the Stormbreaker, and uh, so you know this is kind of a tune-up match for Will at this point. Looked very strong, you know, in opening contest. Um, Yujiro looked fine. He was there. Um, there was some plotting moments where. And which, which is fine. I, I don't, you know, I'm not always a super work rate guy. I think that there's a time and place for selling and things of that nature. But he honestly kind of seemed out of his element. But w- it didn't really matter because Will could just flip around him and do whatever he needed to do and just look spectacular. So um, I couldn't go super high in this match. But I agree with you. I think it's one of Ujiro's best matches. But I didn't see anything different from Ujiro that led me to believe that he's going to have a, a great tournament or. You know, like, for instance, last year when um, Will had those matches with Archer, it was like they were really great matches, but Archer was holding his own against Osprey, and it was like, wow, he's bringing something extra out of Archer. But here it was just like Yujiro's just there, and Will's just working around him, and they just had they had a decent match. That's pretty much my, you know, summation of everything. I don't know. I felt like Yujiro was trying a little bit harder than he was during, you know, some of the Okada matches and some of these handicap matches and some of these multi-man matches he's been having. Clearly, Osprey was a star and, like you mentioned, was kind of working around him. But I felt like he was a little bit more motivated. There was a little bit more juice behind some of the stuff he was doing. I mean, I saw him hit an angle slam, which he doesn't usually hit. That's one of his old big moves. So I would agree with you. But it wasn't anything to me that was like, oh, man, Yujiro is... A motivated Yujiro. <laughs> hey, nah, maybe it wasn't like that. Maybe this is a 2020 motivated Yujiro. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Will picks up the two points and uh, cut a, a 
big promo about how he is the best in the world and he's so glad to be back in you know new japan and how new japan's been great but without him and some of the other foreigners and kenta you know things weren't quite the same and now he's there you know he can prove who he is so uh that was pretty cool and uh yeah yeah, he said he missed home, missed everyone. He said he was scared and nervous before he entered, then realized there's no reason to be scared or nervous because he is the best in the world. And so, yeah, so. We'll That's see. what I do every week before we record. <laughs> I'm like, you are the young boy. You have no reason to be fearful. You are the ace of podcasts. <laughs> and, you know, it's very interesting. We normally don't see uh, post-match promos unless it's obviously like the closing match. And so. Makes me think that uh, keep, you got to keep your eyes on Osprey in this tournament. When I get in the mirror, I go, would you pod with me? <laughs> I would pod with me. I'd pod with me so fucking hard. <laughs> 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 All right. So uh, next match of the evening, we had uh, the Lord Emperor Taichi defeating Jeff Cobb. 12 minutes and 47 seconds. Yeah, I thought this was um, a very good matchup here. Um, it started off kind of slow with Tai Chi, you know, he's stalling very early, kind of, you know, doing the, the normal, you know, Tai Chi kind of antics here. And then um, getting to the middle of the match really picked up there, and we kind of saw good Tai Chi. There was a lot of hard hits, a lot of uh, strikes here, a lot of great suplexes from Jeff Cobb, and overall pretty good match here. Yeah, I kind of remember these guys having good chemistry in the B block last year for whatever reason. I'm, I'm not saying that you should go check out their match, but I just kind of remember thinking that there was something to that pairing. So um, I think they kind of proved that to be the case here again. Uh, good match. Uh, everything I would agree with everything you mentioned. A uh, few things that I liked about the match was in the beginning when they're on the outside um, – Tai Chi basically grabbed the timekeeper's um, Bell hammer. hammer and he attacked uh, Jeff Cobb's like knee and leg. That kind of became the target for most of his offense for the remainder of the match. And so they told a little, you know, body parts uh, selling story there where Jeff Cobb is, you know, relying on his wheels to be able to do the suplexes and, you know, aerial maneuvers that he's known for. Whereas Tai Chi has a target the whole time. And so it's kind of like a, it's almost like a race, which is going to, you know, give out first, you know, Tai Chi's body or Jeff Cobb's leg and who's going to be, be able to inflict the most uh, damage. I thought Cobb looked strong, even in defeat. Um, And it gave Cobb a a plausible, you know, way out where he was beat clean by Tai Chi, even though Tai Chi cheated early in the match, it was almost like he, uh, put some money in the bank and it, it paid off in dividends towards the end uh, so that when he did get the clean end, it was still a little dirty, but it still made him look strong. And, you know, Cobb could put him over, but still have that out. And uh, I kind of like that story there. So, you know, Tai Chi was able to kind of weather the storm and uh, capitalize on, on his game plan against Cobb. Yeah, Tai Chi was clearly watching NJPW strong every Friday. He saw that Cobb's <laughs> uh, knee was injured during the Kenta match. So he's like... I'm going to be smart here. I'm going to attack. He, he was injured before. I'm going to attack that injured knee, work that over. Um, Cobb, I loved. He had a great spot in here where he did, like, these kind of rolling gut wrench suplexes. Um, those are pretty cool. Um, tai Chi hit um, his, you know, his dangerous backdrop on Cobb. I love that dangerous backdrop and how he just kind of hits it out of nowhere on people. 
Um, yeah, I, I like that a lot too. Um, I'm pretty sure what happened is Cobb went to Tai Chi before the match and he was like, uh, my, my left leg brother, uh, take care of me out there. <laughs> and then Tai Chi was like, you stupid Gaijin American pig idiot. Why would you tell me your weak point? I'm gonna, I'm gunning for you. <laughs> Jeff Hogg. But, uh, yeah, he was calling him Jeff Hogg in the, uh, post match, which was really funny. And then, uh, kind of just alluding to the fact that, you know, next on the docket for him is Suzuki. They haven't, you know, um, he's almost like the, the second in command or lieutenant to Suzuki within Suzuki Goon. They haven't fought in a singles match in 10 years. So, um, kind of an emotional thing there, but, uh, yeah, I, I like this match. I thought it was good. Uh, one last thing, Cobb always, you know, impressive, but I'm still not seeing enough just yet. Now it's a preliminary match, but I'm not seeing enough yet to like, think that this is a different Jeff Cobb than the one we got in the previous year's G1. So I'm hoping to see more from him um, going forward. But I, I thought Tai Chi, I thought both guys look good here, but I was more impressed with Tai Chi than Jeff Cobb, honestly. Yeah, Tai Chi gets the win here with the Black Mephisto. Pretty much beats Cobb clean, like you mentioned. Uh, they have this question here from Scott Rands. Is it just me, or, or could Cobb really be something if he just turned up the intensity and played more to the audience? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I don't want to put any performer in a box and say you need to be this or you need to be that but there is an archetype within new japan where big muscular strong american gaijin workers have certain expectations about what they should or shouldn't be and i thought i felt like you know the previous guy who kind of felt filled that void in new japan was michael elgin and he did that extremely well especially in his early run and um we still haven't really seen that from Jeff Cobb just yet because I think he works in indie style that yeah, kind of works in the context of New Japan, but not not when you're talking about main event style wrestling, uh, like the house style. And so, yeah, I do think he needs to turn up the intensity. I think he needs to use more devastating power moves in his repertoire and stop um, relying so heavily on the indie-rific, you know, high-flying spots and super kicks and stuff like that. Definitely. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, I definitely think, yeah, Scott is on a good point here. Yeah, I think if he turned up the aggression, did some more power moves like you were saying, yeah, even do play the crowd a little bit. And also they can't really cheer, but, you know, kind of interacting with them a little bit more, I definitely think that that could help Cobb kind of take things to the next level. Awesome. Um, so I would say that was – I liked that match better than the opener, but this is where things really started to heat up. We had – uh, the King Minoru Suzuki taking on the uh, Stone Pitbull Tomohiro Ishii. Yes, this is the grade one climax, baby. <laughs> this was freaking awesome. This was everything you expected from a Suzuki and Ishii match, and it was absolutely great. Uh, these guys came out here throwing bombs, uh, forearms, slaps, headbutts. Um, there's a lot of great counters between the uh, the Gotch pile driver and the Brain Buster here. Uh, Ishii once again proving why he is one of the best sellers in all of professional wrestling. He gets cracked by Suzuki and he's just bumbling like a guy that's like you know knocked out off his feet uh, and just it's really just sold all those strikes. It's looking great. Yeah, I. 100% agree. I don't think I've ever seen a bad match between uh, Suzuki and uh, 
Ishii, two of my favorite workers, both very adept at that hard-hitting smash mouth, you know, um, hostile within New Japan's confines. 13 minutes, it didn't overstay its welcome. Very violent. Um, you know, and one thing too, Suzuki, uh, I, I think sometimes he doesn't get the same credit for his selling, um, but because he does it more selectively, like he no-sells so much of his opponent's offense um, but it's not like a no selling, like where he's being a dick. It's more like he's grimacing and then showing his toughness by not succumbing to the strikes and showing that he can, you know, weather the storm. But there was one moment in this match where, uh, he like laughed and sh- like shrugged off whatever Ishii was doing. And then the very next strike just planted Suzuki on the floor. And it's awesome when he does that sort of thing, because once he finally takes the big, like, self or whatever it is that hits him you know like oh my god like suzuki's mm-hmm. off his feet this is a big deal and um i love that and then ishii like you mentioned just an incredible seller like he he also to a s- smaller degree does some of what suzuki does but he's able to look like a badass and intimidating during a match but then also in the midst of it sell from underneath to where he's like literally an underdog the whole match and but then when he comes back and does throat chops and enziguris and head butts. Like you kind of forget how much like hell he went through. Right. And um, it, this match was awesome. Yeah. One thing I love that Ishii does with his selling is like he'll sell and then he'll, he'll hit a big move and then go right back to selling. Like he'll hit like a crazy lariat and then go right, go back to selling his arm. He did that here in this match as well. And like you mentioned head butts. There was a head butt spot here where Ishii just cracked Suzuki uh, with the head butt. Then Suzuki came back with some head butts of his own. Uh, Ishii pulled out an air raid crash uh, that was pretty awesome, dropping Suzuki right on his head. Yeah, and the, the the thing here, this was basically bombs away, two heavyweights just throwing bombs, trying to knock one another out, and you kind of got the feeling like either one of these guys could be put away if the right thing hit, and it really came down to their finishers. This was basically strategic chess where... These guys are mixing in strikes, but they're trying to create an opening so they can either get the gotcha or either get the uh, uh, brain buster. And that's what they teased for the whole 13 minutes. So very violent, but it was simple storytelling that you could easily follow, which is something that Suzuki's been doing all year long in some of his more heralded matches. And I I loved that. And so many times you thought Ishii was going to get the uh, brain buster and he couldn't. And then when Suzuki finally got the gotcha, kind of knew. The great thing is both those finishers are very protected. So once they hit, that's game over. And you kind of knew that's what it was going to take for one of these guys. So it, it, it could have gone either way. But ultimately, Suzuki picks up a big win here. Two points in the bucket. And we move on. Yeah. And so with this match, in a way, it was kind of an upset. Just based on what I've been seeing on people's predictions. Because I think a lot of people, including myself, were like, this is a great night for upset. It's a great chance for a guy like Ishii to beat Suzuki to set up a future Never title match. We know we got that big power struggle coming up. You want to do some big matches there. You could have Ishii beat Suzuki and get a Never title shot, but it made more sense here. You had Suzuki just winning the belt, coming out strong first night here, and just beating Ishii. You know, it might be a upset from the standpoint of uh, – some fans perspective, but I don't really see it that way to be honest with you. Like, um, I, I don't know, like, you know, Tomohiro Ishii has been having a great year, but at the same time, like he got beat by Shingo Suzuki beat Shingo. 
He got beat this year by uh, Hiromu. I don't know if I see Hiromu getting a clean pinfall victory over Minoru Suzuki. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, just in this, I think what people were anticipating was maybe a potential never title shot. Right. And I feel like people were booking the upset. I don't think this was an upset. I think that they were anticipating an upset and we got the standard here because I think in the landscape of New Japan, Suzuki's much higher on the rate, like, you know, in the uh, trajectory of things than Tomohiro Ishii is personally. Yeah. And we had a question here from friend of the show, Dan Coffin. He says, is 52-year-old Minoru Suzuki the wrestler of the year right now? Banger after banger in 2020. I couldn't say that personally, but um, he's definitely a, a strong candidate, at least in New Japan, maybe across the world. Um, I, I think he meant New Japan. Even still, I mean, I think he's a strong candidate across the world. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know that he's my wrestler of the year in New Japan quite yet. I think all bets are off until the G1 is really finalized. That's gonna. But look at who. Look at the parade of characters he has to play with here. So he could come out of this thing as the wrestler of the year. It's totally possible. Yeah, he's definitely one of my top candidates right now. Definitely that top mix there. Maybe even top three, top five of New Japan. Like you mentioned, even across the world, like he's just been having an incredible year. Well, it's, 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 and I don't want to go into this too much, but just, you know, real bait, real quickly, like you've got Hiromu's a contender, Shingo's a contender, Minoru Suzuki's a contender, and I think Tomohiro Ishii's a contender. And we're just talking about based off of in ring. You know what I mean? Right. That's strange when we're talking about a year where I can't really consider Okada, Abushi. Tanahashi, Naito, like the the cast of character Jay White, the guys that you traditionally would put as wrestler of the year candidates at this point in the year going into a G one, um, it's a little different. Now, obviously, the pandemic has a lot to do with that, but uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure some of that will shift once this G one is over. But yeah, very interesting to see who's kind of on top right now. So uh, moving on to the next matchup here, we had the Switchblade, Jay White, making his return to Japan to take on the Dragon Shingo Takagi. Yeah, this is a rematch of a B-Block match that these two had previously um, last year. And in that match, I remember thinking it was good, very good even, but not necessarily great. I would actually um, go a little higher on this one. Um, I looked at the cage match on it, and both matches were 19 minutes and change. The first one being 26 seconds, this one being 28. So they almost worked like literally the same length of match, which is kind of crazy. Um, but this has got to be, for me, right now, the best Jay White match since the G1 finals last year against Ibushi. Now I know there's some people that really enjoyed the Ibushi series from, from the tail end of, you know, last year going into the new year. Maybe they liked those Naito or those, uh, um, Goto matches after the G1. But personally I was pretty low on all of those. I haven't really liked any of Jay White's work on a high level since the G1 last year. And this is the first truly, like, I would call semi-great match that he's had. I, I thought this match was very, very good. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. This is probably his best singles match since then. And 
you know, for the most part, this match until the end, it was pretty much worked straight. Like, um, obviously, Jay was being weaselly healed, but um, and Gato popped up every once in a while. But I felt compared to most of his matches, it was less shenanigans compared to what we normally see. Yeah, there's definitely going to be, you know, your traditional complaints from people that are like, oh, my gosh, we got so much, you know, tomfoolery going around. You know, there was a ref bump and, you know, distractions and everything like that. But I don't know, man. I've been watching, like, New Japan Strong (laughs) (laughs) and, like, the amount of uh, interference and everything of that nature has been way beyond what we got here. And the match was pretty straight across the board. Um, now, I mean, there was definitely stalling tactics and some cheating and things of that nature from Jay White, but some of the things I will praise him for that, you know, those people who don't like Jay White, I would kind of challenge you to maybe like take some of this into consideration. It's like, if you paid attention to the crowd, somehow they just seem to be completely into this matchup and into everything that Jay did when you kind of contrast that with say the evil run from this past year where he was doing very similar things in his matches, but they just didn't seem to get the same kind of reaction from the crowd. It kind of shows me just what a high level heel Jay white is capable of being. And again, I don't think that what he was doing in this match was overdone whatsoever. Um, I think that these two guys, you know, worked together for the first time last year and maybe weren't completely familiar with each other, had a very good match, and I think that they took that and built on it to improve it for the next year. I thought I thought this match was very good. Yeah, definitely kind of uh, started off with Jay working very methodically and getting uh, Shingo to kind of work his pace and kind of outsmarting Shingo at some points, but then Shingo just kind of coming back with the brute force, and he would come back with the double sledge and the lariats, uh, the sliding lariats eventually you know, end up hitting the, the Noshigami, um, hitting a wheelbarrow German, it looked pretty cool. Um, they had a great strike exchange here, uh, which uh, Jay cut off with his flatliner um, German combo, which I love. Uh, and so, yeah, great kind of back and forth here until we get towards the the ref bump here, where um, so Jay takes the ref, Gato jumps up, Chingo fights off Gato, um, hits a pumping bomber to Jay White, um, then he teases the last of the dragon. White kicked Red Shoes and took a ref bump there to the floor. Uh, Shingo hits the last of the dragon, but obviously Red Shoes is out. Then White hits a low blow. Red Shoes is rolled back in. White hits the uh, the back suplex into a bridge for a near fall, that, that regal plex. And then he hits the Blade Runner and then the, um, the, bla- yeah, the Blade Runner and gets the win there. Yeah, I think when it comes to, um, you know... <sighs> When, when, when it comes to Jay White, he kind of gets a bad rap in some cases. And I'll be the first to admit when he has a match that's overwrought with, you know, distractions, interference, things of that nature. And because it happens so prevalently in his matches, especially in the past, sometimes when he has a really great match, people still have that bias going against him. Especially, They can't even look at a match in a vacuum. They have to judge it against the... Um, whole of his work and and the trends that are there and it's like here's the thing with this guy he is a heel and he's the most dastardly of heels and he's with the bull club and this is kind of their mo so you kind of have to expect that this sort of thing is happening but when you when you compare this in my opinion to his work say in 2018 in the g1 
this is a far cry from <laughs> the Jay White that we had that year. I mean, this was a guy who was out there doing strike exchanges, taking huge bumps, big risks. He was drop. He was busting out his big offense. You know, the arm cross bloody Sunday and the sleeper suplex and all sorts of things. I thought this was a very well worked match. And there were people who were like, "Well, why did they have to have so much interference?" Like, oh, he's a bad guy. <laughs> In a straight one-on-one match, the, the the whole deal is that Shingo is the hero and should be able to beat him. And they kind of showed that without help, Jay White would have got beat. Right. And, and and you're like, well, I don't like that. You're not supposed to like it because he's a heel and he's trying to get heat from you. And if you're that upset about it, you're kind of getting a little bit worked. <laughs> so it's like, um, I don't know, man. Like, I, I think there's definitely a limit. For sure, when it comes to interference and things of that, you know, <laughs> there I go again, things of that nature. But um, you also have to kind of like keep it all in perspective. Like if the match is great and he's able to generate heat from a silent crowd, then he's probably doing a pretty good job. I can't think of too many other heels in the world today on the main stage that are able to do with a silent crowd what Jay White's doing, the only person I can really think of is like maybe MJF, but not even to the same degree. So yeah, I thought this match was awesome. Um, I, I went four stars on it. I thought it was um, the second best match of the night. I liked it just behind uh, Ishii and Suzuki. And I'm looking forward to you know what the future holds in this tournament for both of these guys. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. I also went four stars here, notebook match for me. And like you mentioned, I feel like if what's happening in the ring is great in between the interference, it works out. And uh, people might want to compare Jay White to Evil, or it's like, well, what Evil was doing, the stuff in between the interference wasn't great, and then there was just an overabundance of interference. I feel like, yes, even though there was a ref bump and Gale was hopping in here, I didn't feel like it was quite as much as we would see in a normal kind of Bullet Club match. Yeah, and who knows? You know, Evil's just kind of learning this style. We kind of felt the same way about, and here I here I go saying a, a, a positive thing about Evil. We felt similarly in some regards to Jay White when he first started as a heel, as we do about Evil now. And it's taken time and seasoning for him to learn when to pepper it in correctly, what the right timing is, what the right delivery of his healdom is, and uh, it's working for him. And maybe with time, Evil will kind of. Uh, you know, improve in that area as well. So, you know, who knows, but, uh, this match is great and uh big win, really big win. Because I mean, you got to imagine Shingo's a guy who's going to do well in the tournament. And I mean, a loss to Jay white, who is another guy that's going to have a high point total. That's a huge loss for Shingo. Huge. Right. And a question here from Scott Rand. He says, I guess we're getting the same old Jay white relying on Gato and shortcut gimmick. He's done previously. I was hoping a change of character. Um, no, but I will say that this has been an improvement of character. Last year during the G1 was like one of the first times in a long time where I felt like Jay White was really coming into his own, you know? Mm-hmm. And after the G1, it felt like that was gone. <laughs> after uh, after the um, Abushi match, like it just became like an overabundance of the shenanigans and not so much the great worker version of Jay White that we got in the G1. 
um, last year, this was the first time where it feels like that guy is back. And uh, I think I kind of answered most of his uh, criticisms in my earlier statement, so I won't like pick them all apart. But I mean, guys, it is wrestling. There are heels and there are good guys. There's bad guys and good guys. And um, I know there's some people out there that are like, well, you don't always have to cheat to get heat. And I'm like, that's true. But some guys do. <laughs> you know, Suzuki might not need to always, but that's because he's a different kind of heel. You know, um, that's not the kind of heel that Jay White is. And I just feel like if he's having now, if he's going to have bad matches and fuck off, that's different. We'll call that out. But when he's having good matches, I think that the I think you got to give credit where credit's due, man. You just have to. Yeah, I think a lot of people might might have been hoping for some kind of change of character because of the whole like Bullet Club potential war and everything that's been going on with Evil. But as you think about it, like what motivation does Jay really have to change his character? Like no, nothing. He really, has none. Right. Like, nothing's really changed. Like he just hasn't been in Japan, and we've seen him on Strong. He's still the same character, and was, he hasn't he hasn't shown any difference on his social media on the U.S. show. There's nothing to indicate to us in his promos that he, this is a different guy whatsoever. And uh, yes, I think there is an interesting angle to be taken once we see the interactions between him and Evil down the line. But there's a reason that they're in different blocks. So it would – I don't know. Let's – okay, hypothetically, let's say you're Gato and you are going to book a civil war. Do you really want to tip your hat right now and show all your cards by uh, – you know? like telegraphing the fact that this guy is going to be the good guy and he's changing like, nah, man, do it subtly. Do it when these guys interact, maybe on the last night of the G1 or down the road, you know, whatever that may be. And, and who knows, you guys might be working yourself into a storyline idea that might never come to fruition. Right. It could be Jay and evil get along perfectly well. And it's just a, a new, bigger bullet club. Absolutely. So let's move on to the main event here of night one, the A block. We had the Golden Star, Kota Abushi taking on the Rainmaker, Kazuchika Okada. Big Wrestle Kingdom rematch here to close off the show. Yes, and also a rematch of the um, B block final from. That was B block final last year, right? Was it B or A? Yeah, was it A or B? I thought it was a, a it was a block. Yeah, it was a block. Sorry. Uh, so these two faced off in a block final last year, wrestled at wrestle kingdom this past year. And now, you know, we get another rematch between these two. And, um, up until this match happened, I would tell you, I didn't think that there's hardly any real upsets whatsoever. And, we're always due for a big surprise upset night one and night two. And so once these guys came out, I was automatically like, well, Abushi lost the most recent match between these two. We haven't gotten any upsets. They're kind of like telling me right now that Abushi is going to pick up the win here. But I was still very excited to watch this match. I thought it was a good match, but I will tell you, I did not think it was a great match. In fact, I was lower on this than Shingo and uh, Jay White, which really surprised me uh, because it was one of the most anticipated matches of the whole tournament. Yeah, I mean, I, I still thought it was a pretty good main event, um, but it definitely was did not hit the heights that I was expecting. You know, that A-block final match was incredible. 
the Tokyo Dome match was incredible. Potentially the, the match of the year for 2020. And I was expecting something on that level and just not quite get there. It just felt like they were holding back and not fully going to that full gear. And, you know, there's a lot of questions online, um, including from this, this question here from Viking Payne. Where do you guys stand on the Okada's washed up versus Okada's storytelling, telling a story debate that's happening online? So there's a lot of people saying, is, is Okada washed up? Is this some kind of story of him kind of a redemption story and him, you know, having to kind of get his game back because we've pretty much seen since new Japan's returned from the pandemic, we have not gotten the same Okada. He's been doing this money clip and trying to work that in. He hasn't hit a rainmaker. Hasn't even attempted really going for a rainmaker and just really hasn't been putting out, you know, the, the top quality, you know, main event performances that we expect from him. Um, so, well, I've got I've got some theories as to why that might be, but what are your initial thoughts? So my initial thoughts is I, I don't you know it's hard for me to think that he's washed. Um, I mean, it was only you know eight months ago that he put on one of the best matches of the year. So I, I don't think he completely lost it in eight months. I do think that they are telling some kind of story here uh, with Okada. Um, you know, maybe I don't know exactly what what his issue is. Maybe he's was was overconfident here. You know, he beat Abushi the last time, and thinking, you know, I I don't need the Rainmaker. Maybe that's his whole thing. Like maybe I, he's trying to prove that he doesn't need the Rainmaker kind of thing, and or maybe he's just kind of lost his mojo and he has to find his way back. But I, I, I I'm really hard to think that he's washed right now. Well, um. I've got a few different thoughts, and I won't commit to any one of them. One thing that was noticeable, the first thing I would say is I haven't noticed any quote-unquote story, any any like overt story that they're trying to tell aside from just in-ring results. Obviously, the whole King of Pro Wrestling thing happened. He got pinned by Toriano, so there's always that. Um, and he lost to Evil at the uh, New Japan Cup this past year, and you know, he's been struggling in the undercard with Yujiro. So, you know, you could probably piece some things together as far as the story goes. But one thing that was very telling to me was during the post-match comments, there was no comment at all from Okada. That silence speaks volumes as far as a story goes, more so than all the speculation online and, and all the results leading up to this. So that's one thing. But um, I'm, I'm not completely sold on the idea that there is a grand scheme story. Now, if, if they lean that way and they start telling that story very blatantly, then I'll change my tune. Some things I will say, I really doubt Kazushiko Kata, one of the best workers in the history of the entire sport of wrestling, is washed at, like, what, age 32? Right. Or whatever age he is, I don't know. Um I, I highly doubt that. Now, could he be banged up and, you know, um, his body needs some rest and that sort of thing? Sure. Um, there's been some reports to that, you know, that kind of allude to that. That might be a factor. But my biggest feeling on this, honestly, man, is I just don't think that Okada, his style of wrestling, is, like, um, very friendly to the non audience like the non-vocal audience crowds and i think that is simply it that would be my key um 
speculation. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe Okada is working down the same way he did in the G1 two years ago when he was broken. That's a possibility. That's what it feels like to me. Like, watching this match, it, it felt very similar to that. Like, he is purposely not taking it to the next level because they're trying to tell, tell something here, tell some kind of story. That's possible. But also, it's felt like since, even in matches where I felt like he was trying pretty hard, like, say, the Eugene Nagata match or the Hiromu match, I just don't think that the style of wrestling he was doing translated well to empty arena or non-vocal audiences. And there could be a mixture of all these things. It doesn't have to be one thing in particular, you know? Um, do I think if Okada wanted to, he's a smart enough and capable enough wrestler to adjust his style? Sure. So maybe that lends some uh, credibility to what you're saying, Jeremy, that there is a, a, a reason behind it and a story that's possible. These are all possibilities, but... The truth is nobody knows, and I don't even know why anyone's debating about it because only he knows and only like Gato knows and <laughs> none of us really know. Um, but my my thinking is I don't think that he, him and Abushi planned to have that level of a wrestling match on the first night in a big building like that. That's, that's the one thing that kind of gets to me. I feel like they were – and I felt like he tried pretty hard on this night as well, and so did Ibushi. But um, for, for whatever reason, the lack of crowd response was kind of uh, damaging. Now, they had some great moments, especially the uh, the moment where Ibushi springboards onto the uh, top rope and does the um, Frankensteiner, Hurkinrana. And even though they kind of botched the spot, it still came off pretty incredibly yeah, like but I think Bushi lost his balance, but like caught it at the last second, snapped Okada over. I think the big talking point, and it's going to be a big story of this tournament, is that money clip submission. Yeah, and we had a question here from Reddit user: Why did you do that, bro? Why can't Okada not have a great match without the Rainmaker? The night one main event was good, but considering the last two Okada Bushi matches, it should have been a whole lot better. I like Juice versus Hashi nearly as much as this match. I think he's absolutely capable of having a great match without the Rainmaker, but um, I don't know that he's capable of having a great match just using the money clip. <laughs> right. Um, um, which have another question here from Highest Fly Flow it says, "What destroys momentum of a match harder, Sonata's Dragon Sleeper or Okada's Cobra Clutch? Why do you guys think Sonata and Okada can't get their submissions to work when guys like Nakamura using the flying armbar, triangle choke, and Tanahashi Cloverleaf have no issue?" Uh, well, I mean, it just depends on how it's booked, you know? <laughs> um, I've got a strong feeling that Okada will get a lot of victories with this money clip during the tournament. Um, like, I'm not anticipating that he's going to have struggles putting down, like, I don't know, Jeff Cobb. Or, or maybe, I don't know, yeah, other guys like that, like Taichi and stuff like that with the money clip. I, I see them all pretty much tapping to this thing. My biggest criticisms of it are the same ones that we had when he first initially did it. He doesn't bust it out in any way that is dynamic, and I don't know if that's by de – to me, I know he's a smart wrestler, and so I'm wondering if this is even by design. It's like in what world does he think that just sit, like crouching next to the guy who's in a seated position and then – Sl like literally slowly just slithering your arms in and, and locking it on and the guy making like a scream face is going to be compelling to anybody like 
none of the great submission finishers in history ever really worked that way. There was usually a buildup. You know, you think about like, say, Scorpion Deathlock. He wraps it on. He looks around, turns him. And when he turns him, it's like, oh, my God. And then he sits on it. Same same uh, psychology with, say, a Boston Crab. Or if you were going to put someone into – look at all the other great people who have put on um, you know, the, the, the exact same or at least different versions of the move like the Cobra Clutch. Anytime like uh, Ted DiBiase or like Sergeant Slaughter put it on, it was always like a rebounding move. They're coming off the ropes and he would catch them in it. You know, uh, I think that part of the fact is he's not catching people with it. There's no dynamic uh, delivery of how he's putting people into it. And I'm wondering, I'm like, is he purposefully like – sandbagging on the move for a storytelling purpose or is he just not know that it's not getting over because of because i think this move could 100 percent get over i've seen lots of people look at taz look at different people who've had samoa joe all, all sorts of people who've had variations of a choke who've all been able to get it over roddy piper you know uh and you're telling me okada's the one guy that can't do it it's either he's doing it on purpose or he just doesn't know and like someone needs to like teach him how to put it on properly because there is a way if he wanted to put on uh, a chokehold and make it you know dynamic and people would get behind it then sure but uh yeah i don't know man yeah no, those are all great points and like yeah you mentioned it's not it's not coming out of nowhere you know a lot of great submissions can kind of like you mentioned you kind of catch him or come out of nowhere or normally some kind of big setup move like you mentioned samoa joe like He's that muscle buster. You know the clutch is coming right after the muscle buster, and he's going to lock it in. And so there's not really that big kind of signature move that leads into the clutch. Like you mentioned, he's not really catching people off of it. It's just kind of a, a rest hole in a way, and it totally kills momentum of his matches. Yeah, I had to go three and three quarters on this match. I wasn't a huge fan. Um, I It was still a good main event, so it's not like I'm ba- totally bearing it. It was well worth the time to watch it, but given who was involved in it and the stakes that were there, um, I expected a lot more, especially just considering the kind of competitor Okada typically is in a G1. I was very surprised. I think that this is probably, in my estimation, the worst match that these two have ever had against one another, at least in my viewing experience. So very surprised by that. But overall, an incredible night of action. I mean, you look at those top three matches and a strong undercard. I mean, a block really fucking brought it. Yeah, great night here. Um, Kota Bushi, you know, post match comments talking about um, super weird the G, you know, the G and G one, and it's because it's for God this year. Bushi talking about wanting to, um, you know, be a god of a capital G, and so yeah, that didn't make sense because he was like, well, my heroes Nakamura and Tanahashi, they're gods to me, but they're just people. But some people will get this and others won't. But I'm going to become a god capital g and it's like yo you about to like transcend like your human nature (laughs) what are you talking about this man has been watching some dragon ball super he's watching you know super saiyan god level he's he thinks he's goku he's getting ready to ascend to the next level here (laughs) yeah it was weird that was weird but um yeah i mean you gotta imagine that's a huge win for him um Part of me feels like, and we'll get into this when we do the preview here in a moment, but part of me feels like him beating Okada on the first night and my my expectations that Okada's still going to do very well in this tournament, that kind of is a key indicator to me. It might sound backwards, but I don't think that Ibushi's going to do so hot in this tournament. 
Yeah, I think we're going to kind of go back to that story that we were seeing pre-pandemic where he kind of is in a funk in a singles role. I'm, I'm not Chris Samsa here. I don't have stats in front of me, so I can't like back everything up I'm saying. But it's I've seen a trend with many guys where if they're the guy who's getting that upset win on the first night, very often it can be a key indicator that they're not going to go all the way in the tournament. I think of like uh, Sonata beating Tanahashi on like his first night in the G1. I think about Goto beating Jay White last year, things of that nature. So I don't know, man. Like it's great for Ibushi, big win. He got his win back, but like, and I feel like his next, the next guy he has in front of him is Jay White. I think he might even beat Jay White too. Yeah, and that was kind of my prediction last week. I was saying he's going to get revenge on the two people he lost at the Dome and beat those but, guys back-to-back. But they love to tell those stories where guys go up heavy early on and then peter off in the you know middle of the tournament. I feel like that's what's in store for Ribushi. Yeah, and they also like telling the stories of guys who start off losing and then kind of pick it up towards the end. Correct. And I feel like that's what's going to happen with Okada. Like, I have to look and see who his next two opponents are, but I could easily see him losing three straight and then winning the last six and, and to win the block. Well, we talked about this block being a very parody-based block, so guys have to eat losses in order for that to be the case, considering all the different guys that are in it. So that remains to be seen. But uh, you want to jump into this B block real quick? Uh, before we go to the B block, we had a question here from Rambo and Slam Pig. He said, did the first night of action cause you to rethink your overall predictions, or are you still – feeling confident so uh, for everyone that listened last week you'll notice we ran out of time we didn't get into our official predictions i have not submitted a block this year or uh, a bracket because once i started trying to work on it i came to the conclusion that i literally couldn't predict this tournament and i don't feel that maybe some of you are delusionally um, confident, <laughs> but I don't feel like anybody really should feel too confident because they're bucking all the trends with the way they've, I mean, nothing like with my analytical mind, there are certain key indicators and trends that you can usually count on when it comes to, uh, predicting a G1 and that stuff's all out the window. It's just not there. And anytime it seems like there is something that might be there, there's something else that throws it off. I don't know who's winning this tournament. I've got theories. I've got scenarios but i don't feel confident whatsoever i have no idea yeah so i put a bracket into our contest i have okada winning the whole thing um but again i'm not very confident my, my bracket's not looking too hot right now i've only um i'm five out of ten right now between uh both nights so not not doing so hot on my predictions here so do you remember that episode of the office where uh Dwight was prepping, and Jim's like, when do you think the world's going to end? He's like, a week from now. And Dwight's like, possibly. And he's like, a month from now? He's like, yeah, that's possible. He's like, not a year from now. He's like, that's a very real scenario I could see happening. And then like they cut over, and he's like, 18 years from now. And he's like, yes, I could see that really happening. <laughs> <laughs> that is how I am with this G1. Like You could pretty much throw – as long as it's within reason, there's probably like six, seven, maybe eight scenarios right now that I'm all like, yeah, that could happen. I have no idea, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, how everything kind of plays out here. But yeah, let's... I, I, I'm going to take the angle where I didn't predict it ahead of time, but as we analyze things and see how they shake out, I, I will begin to um, formulate my opinions as we go along and give our analysis. 
Yeah. So uh, let's move on to night two here. So we already talked about Yota Suji defeating Gabriel Kidd to get the win, the opener, 9 minutes, 15 seconds. So that takes us to the first uh, B-block matchup here of night two. We had the return of the flamboyant Juice Robinson taking on <laughs> one-third of the never-openweight six-man champions, Yoshihashi. And what what the fuck was <laughs> was Juice Robinson wearing, bro? What is going on with his hair, and what was he wearing? Dude, we we have a lot of questions about Juice's appearance. Everybody, I think a lot of people kind of were wondering the same thing, bro. Um, let's dive into that. Yeah. So, a question here from Rambo and Slam Pig is: Do you think Juice takes his fashion cues from male strippers? If not, what exactly is he going for? Literally, that's a question that I asked. I was like, what is this guy going for? Like, we had some speculations in our group chat where, like, people were like, the Blues Brothers, uh, Magic Mike, is this supposed to be, like, you know, um, Freddie Mercury at Live Aid? Like, we, I don't know, man. I literally don't know. It's like a recital outfit that, like, kids wear when they're, like, you know, doing tap or something. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought of, yeah. Yeah, I don't know exactly what he's trying to go for here. Um, question here from Just a Little Bear Zero One. So, what's your take on the speculation? Juice w- really wasn't hurt for the strong tapings. He was just busy rehearsing with the Blues Brothers. <laughs> oh man, I don't know, man. Um, I mean, was that, he hurt? Well, yeah, but uh, for Strong, remember they said like he had some kind of leg injury, and that's the reason why he wasn't on the strong tapings. Well, that could make sense. I mean. I noticed, obviously, uh, Juice is never in terrible shape. So, I mean, it'd, it'd be terrible to like be like, he's not in good shape. But like, comparatively speaking to how he's looked in the past, he's not quite in the same shape that he was just, say, a year ago. And we noticed that, like, say, last December. And I was hoping that, you know, maybe he was injured and he wasn't able to, like, spend his COVID time, you know, training and working out. But I noticed he was wearing a t-shirt was kind of like covering up his stomach. And I was like, maybe that's why he, you know, selected to have to wear this attire. Like, I don't know, man. Well, he was wearing a single, it looks like a, it looked like a white paper. It was actually a singlet uh, that he was wearing under the tights. He pulled his straps down after the match. He didn't look like he was in horrible shape. Yeah, but he's not in juice shape. Yeah, I guess that's he's true. Not, he's not – bro, remember last year we noticed it like during the World Tag League? It's like he's in the same shape now as he was then. I don't think he – I think he's trimmed down a little bit since then. Oh, okay, okay. All right, cool. Well, the other thing too is like he's growing his hair out again, which is cool. But I'm kind of like, well, then why did you cut your hair in the first place? That was like there was supposed to be a whole angle and story. Like he's changing his attitude. He's getting more serious. But then like – He's had a t- ever since that loss to, to Moxley. He's had a terrible year. <laughs> uh, so aside from you know, obviously he's with Tony Storm now, so maybe it's not all bad. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, I don't know. What, I don't like. And what's funny is I try to go through and be like, you know what? He's had some really good attires in the past. What were they? And I try to like look through the histories. And once I started really analyzing all his attires, I was like, dude. Everything Juice wears is fuck shit. All of it. Like, <laughs> and I feel like it gets progressively worse. It has. <laughs> Literally, well, I, feel, I feel like the best. Eh, go ahead. The best attire he had was when he first stopped wearing the trunks and he went to the tights, and he had this like uh, 
technicolor like i don't know how to describe it but it was like light bluish like in mesh and it was really cool looking and it's literally gotten progressively worse since that time i feel like every new appearance were always like what is this man wearing like like it it never fails like every new day every new debut of an outfit it just it just goes down a level (laughs) i last year i liked when he had the undertaker uh outfit Mm, but no one else liked it Well, I think that was definitely better than what he has right now. Bro, yeah, I don't know what this is. I, I And then, like, that's the thing. You want to stand out. You want to be different from everybody else, and that's a great thing. And I totally get that, and I commend him for that, for sure. And that's important. You want to be different, be noticeable, make an impression, have a character. But then you also need to have a character. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what is his character? What is this? I don't know what the fuck it is. And I don't know why he's growing his hair back out anyways. Like I mentioned earlier, it's like, I guess he is. That's cool. Whatever he wants to do. It's his, it's his hair. It's his body. He can do whatever he wants. But like, bro, there was a time where juice to me screamed star. And right now he doesn't look like a star, unfortunately. And like, this is a guy we really support. We've been behind since young lion days and he's still great in the ring. Great on the promo. But this look, man, I don't know what the fuck it is. <laughs> uh, we did have a question here from uh, Ready to Dirty Bubble. Is Juice bringing back right to censor with his new attire? <laughs> <laughs> These are funny jokes. Um, we had a question from our boy Imp from LLP Radio. It says, Duke Robinson wetting the sack with the taste of jazz, but will his G1 record play the smooth, soothing sounds of victory? What's funny is like last week when we were kind of like going over our like expectations, I was like, yeah, Juice might like really surprise people and go further than we expect him to. But then I'm looking at this look and I'm like, this don't look like a, a guy that's going to do very well in the G1. It looks like a guy who's going to be mid of the road, you know, get 10 point or I don't know. Four and four and five. Yeah, like four and five, five and four, something like that. I don't know, man. Uh, I had a question here from at Chris Ertz on Twitter. What's the most shocking attire change? Blues Brother 2000 Juice, Ziggy Stardust Sonata, or Clean Shaven Suji? Oh, from this past, like from just now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're not there yet, but Sonata's gear, I liked Sonata's gear. Yeah, Sonata's gear was raw. I wouldn't call it Ziggy Stardust, but uh, I see what you're saying. Uh, This was, what's funny is like, it's weird because I shouldn't be saying that Juice's attire is the most shocking because Juice always does shocking stuff, but somehow he still managed to shock me the most, even when I'm expecting it. It's <laughs> it's weird. I mean, we instantly got a video like 1 a.m. in the morning because that's when that the show was airing. Or like Rich, like immediately threw it in the group chat. I was like, Rich was like, "What the fuck is this man wearing?" <laughs> Somebody come get your boy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'll, I'll have to go with uh, Juice on that one. It's the most shocking. Uh, and the last one here from Muzza, he says, is this the most Juice Robinson attire that ever Juice Robinsoned? It's up there. I mean, we we could probably do a whole podcast talking about the various attires of Juice, honestly, because there have been some crazy ones. But uh, you know what, man? Here's what I will say. At least he doesn't have a handlebar mustache and a weird afro and at least he doesn't have that anymore. Yeah. But his hair is weird right now, man. <laughs> <laughs> I 
But let's actually talk about the actual match here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so overall, I thought it was a good, good little match here. Uh, uh, when eh. you, we mentioned earlier, Juice got the crowd into it behind the match. Um, you know, I went three and a quarter. Um, you know, it, it was a fine little, it was fine, solid wrestling match here. Good back and forth between both guys. Um, you know, Juice was working for the Pope Friction the whole match. Eventually hits the left hand of God, hits the Pope Friction, and gets the win over uh, Yoshihashi here. You want my hot take? Yeah. Yoshihashi looked better than Juice in this match by far. Mm. And that's not to say that Yoshihashi's better. I understand Yoshihashi's been working since, what, May? Right. Or June, whenever they came back. Yeah. Whenever they came back, I don't remember. So he's got a leg up on him, but um, that's true. It is true. Yoshihashi was the better performer in ring on that night than Juice was. Uh, Juice still looked good for a guy who hasn't been in the ring since February or January or whatever it is. So, you know, I'm not down on him, but uh, it's not something I expected. I, I thought Yoshihashi looked a lot better. Uh, mechanically and timing wise and just he actually bust out the better moves i don't know if you noticed that like uh yoshihashi is a guy who we don't i bury all the time i don't love him i'm not a big fan of him but when the g1 comes around he'll have two or three performances where he really tries hard and he's a pretty motivated guy kind of like what you were alluding to with yujiro but i think that that was bullshit but it's not <laughs> bullshit when it comes to yujiro and uh yeah, man, Yujiro tried really, really, really hard you to mean impress. Yoshihashi? Ah, yeah, my bad. Yoshihashi tried really, really hard to impress, and I thought he looked good in this match. In you know, uh, eating the loss, but uh, overall, I wasn't that impressed with the match. I, I don't know, three stars. It was fine. Um, good, good tune-up match for Juice. I gotta imagine with how talented he is, by the end of this thing, he'll be you know back in the swing of things and performing the way that we're used to seeing him perform because i mean this is a grueling daunting tournament he's got a lot he's got you know eight more days so yeah and then uh, we saw his uh backstage promos calling yoshihashi a sweet boy and <laughs> yeah i love that yeah he called him ichiban sweet boy and he was he basically said you know everyone who said that you know yoshihashi had a shot that this was a hard match to predict that's all bullshit and uh this was easy, just a tune-up match for him and he was like He's like, I like Yoshiashi, sweet, sweet boy. But you know who else is sweet boy? That guy working at the corner mark down there. And guess what? He didn't have a shot with me tonight, and neither did Yoshihashi. And I was <laughs> like, yo, say what you will about uh, the stuff that this man wears. He's still one of the best promos in the sport of professional wrestling. Yeah, hands down. So now let's uh, move on to the next B-block matchup here. We have the provisional KOPW 2020. One third, actually no, he's not. He's not. Is he a champion? No, he's not that that team. He's he? not. But how about uh, before we move on? How about Yoshihashi being the only person from his team that is still wearing his never six man title out right. to the ring during right. the G one? <laughs> Man's proud of that thing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the provisional KOPW twenty twenty champion Toriano taking on the Cold Skull Sonata. Yeah, uh, you know what, man? I will just come out and say it right now. I liked this match. A freaking lot. I know other people didn't, but dude, come on. Like, how can people hate on this match? How? I, I don't know, man. Like, I didn't hate it. I'm not one of these Yano haters that will go out here 
and go on cage match and write paragraphs and throw zero stars at matches. I, it was a fine little match. I went two stars on it. It was six minutes. It was your typical story with Yano and Tanada. Yano's trying to do all these quick and wacky roll-ups. There's a lot of great near falls off those roll-ups in the beginning. Yes, there were. Uh, but then it kind of turned into the whole story of their rivalry is, like we mentioned last week, Sonata has won by count out what, two, three years in a row now over Yano in the G1 specifically. And Sonata was once again going for the count out victory, tied him up in the paradise lock in the, the middle of the rampway there, told the ref shark counting, thought he was going to get the win. Yuromora comes over, pushes Yano over out of the paradise lock. Sonata is pissed off, wants to know why he did that. And then Yano takes advantage and ties Sonata and Yuromora together. And they have to do the you know the old three legged race there to try and get back in, but also they couldn't beat the clock, beat the time, and uh, Yano's in there first, and Yano wins by count out. It's revenge. Listen, listen. If this is a two star match, then it's got to be one of the best two star matches that has ever two starred. Literally, let me make a let me make a compelling argument for why this match is good. Okay, now I know there's people who don't like the comedy bullshit that comes along with Yano and I get that you know it's not everyone's cup of tea it's not even always my cup of tea and there are all kinds of different wrestling matches I don't have to tell you guys you know you got your epic match your hardcore match you know your preliminary opener all different kinds of styles so would I say that this was like a classic no I'm not gonna say it's a classic was it like a match of the year contender no but what it was aimed to do was to be a competitive, entertaining, short comedy match. And the crowd ate it the fuck up. And part of the reason why is because Yano has a reputation of being able to beat anybody on any given night. And every single time he rolled up uh, Sonata, the crowd ate it up like hotcakes. And the cr- he got some of the loudest crowd reactions of anybody on that evening it's really hard for me to say a match sucked and i think that you people who are doing that are very pretentious and don't understand professional wrestling when the crowd is so thoroughly entertained and they're getting reactions i think a lot of people who throw one and zero stars and things like that on this and who are pretentious and like this isn't what wrestling is it's like Part of what wrestling is is to get reactions, and you'd be much more apt to throw three stars on a young line match that, while it is very technically sound, gets no reaction over a Yano match where he comes out and does comedy and people laugh and then thrilled and then they're excited and then they're shocked and then they're like at the edge of their seats. How can a match that has that many people so like um, – invested into it suck you know like i think you're kind of missing the point of what professional wrestling is it's sports entertainment and i think that this has got to be one of the best yano matches and probably will end up being like one of the best yano matches of the tournament he's going to have a lot of matches that i don't like in this tournament but this is going to be one of the best ones um i also heard the criticism from dave Meltzer where he was talking about at the you know why did the referee not give Sonata leeway to come back into the ring. But the, the smart thing that happened here was when Yano taped up Yumura and Sonata, 
they were already at 17. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the ref was way back in the ring, already counting. Yeah. And they were so far away from the ring when that happened. How could the ref, quote unquote, give leeway, you know, to allow this guy to get back in the ring when he's taped up. And it's like, I understand, I understood Dave's criticism, but I think his criticism is unfounded because it's like, if you want to criticize this, you actually have to criticize everything that happens on the outside in all of new Japan, because Suzuki Goon be attacking people and hitting them with chairs and barricades and choking people and hitting people with, you know, all sorts of with, different, with the ring bell, Tai Chi and night one hit, hit Cobb with the ring bell, the ring hammer. Yeah. You, you can't do that. So, um, Every tournament, we always get some form of countout. We got it on the first night here. That means that that probably means we're not going to get too many more countouts during the tournament. Maybe one more, and that's about it. So we kind of uh, hit the limit on that. But I thought this match was good. I kind of facetiously gave it three stars. I'm not saying it's actually <laughs> a three star match, but like for for a quick comedy six seven minute match, this was really good. The in ring was really good. I I couldn't anyone who calls it crap. I think you're out of your mind go back listen to the crowd and tell me that any crowd that's like responding to it that way the same crowd that's going to respond to this match in the main event that you love between naito and tanahashi was responding just as loudly for yano and sonata that's my argument yeah i thought it was fine for what it was it served its purpose and yeah like i mentioned the crowd pop was popping big for all those uh, near falls you know they're not allowed to cheer but there's a lot of audible gasp when uh, Yano would get you know the two point nine nine you know count yep. on Sonata. Yes, yeah, yeah. I thought this was good, and you know what? There's been a lot more shenanigans laid Yano matches over the years, including like last year his matches with like Kenny Omega and Abushi that people praised. I thought I I prefer this. I prefer a straight wrestling match where he. And here's the thing, Sonata deserved to get taped up. This man was going to put this. He was going to put him in the paradise lock and just leave him out there like a coward. <laughs> <laughs> he deserved to eat the twenty the twenty count for you you know being such a dastardly you know chicken shit for not you know beating this man fair and square one two three in the middle of the ring. He was going to leave this man in the paradise lock and just count him out. Like, come on. <laughs> uh, so we had two questions here. First from Imp, he says, "I've got Yano beating Naito in the Pickums. What are your wild picks for this year's classic G1 upsets? Oh, man. Um, well, I haven't done a bracket, so I'm not totally sure. I will say this, though. Um, very often, if Yano beats you in a block, it means one of two things. It either means that you are probably like going to be close to winning this and maybe even win it. And this is one of those like pinfalls that you have to kind of eat to balance out the scores or it means that you are going to he's played he's spoiling you already and you're definitely not winning and something tells me that this was not sonata getting spoiled because it happened on the first night this feels like it might be a key indicator of what people have been speculating about sonata maybe winning the block this could be a very like uh key thing that indicates that that might actually be the case yeah i don't have my uh my pickums pulled up here but I, I think i also did have yano pinning naito um as a potential upset um i mean i think yano pinning evil could be uh, an, an upset that happens 
Um, we'll, we'll get to Evil in a second, but he's not starting off so hot right now. Well, I think as we go along and we kind of review, give our previews of the nights, we, we'll be able to kind of speak more to what our uh, upsets are because I don't have them all in front of me, honestly. Yeah. Uh, next question here from Scott Rand. He says, has my false hope of Sonata winning the whole tournament been dashed because of his comical first loss to Yano? I don't think so. I think Yano spoiling somebody is one of those things that happens towards the end of a tournament. Sort of like when he beat Kenny Omega the one year, like when he beat uh, Moxley last year. Usually if he beats you early on, like um, didn't he beat Abushi in the tournament last year? Maybe it was the year before, but uh, yeah, he beat Abushi the year prior and Abushi ended up being a finalist. And um, I could be wrong here, but there's been a lot of... I think the year that Kenny Omega went to the – at least one of the years where he went to the finals of a block, he took a pinfall loss to Yano as well. So I think usually if Yano beats you early on, it actually could – it could go one of two ways. It could mean spoil or it could mean that you are win, at least winning the block. Right, or maybe even just going to the finals or just having a high point total. That's what winning the block means. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so anything else on that matchup? No, I I, I liked it. I was entertained, and uh, yeah, I thought it was good. And also, uh, Sonata coming out with the new thud, uh, you know, new clothes, new gear. I think that's a key indicator because he's like the only guy in the tournament aside from Juice that came out with like flexing, you know, with new gear. Like that's also a key indicator that he's he's gonna have a tournament, whether he wins the block or not. He's having a tournament. Yeah, I really liked his gear. I liked it a lot. I like it better than the pirate gear. Yeah. And so uh, let's move on here to the next matchup here. So we had Kenta making his return to Japan, the current IWGP US right to challenge contract holder. And he took on his old rival here, Hiroki Goto. Very good. Uh, I thought this match was good. Um, it didn't live up to its Wrestle Kingdom predecessor for me, but uh, it was by no means a bad match, but I wouldn't call it a notebook match either. I thought they went out there. They had a, a decent match. It was a little slow in the beginning. In the middle, it really picked up, but I really enjoyed the hard-hitting nature of the middle portions of the match, especially the mid-kicks from Goto. And, um, you know, Kenta kind of just challenging, you know, uh, Goto to kind of just unload on him. And um, ultimately, though, the shoulder work from Kenta is what kind of uh, told the story of this match and led to the finish where he was able to apply the game over to uh, get Goto to tap out here. Yeah, that was a pretty good match. I went three and a half on this one. Uh, I think this is the best Kenta match we've seen since the Goto match at Wrestle Kingdom. Um, you know, New Japan Strong, it's been a, his matches have been, it's been a, a, a ton of stalling. I think the, the, the Carl Fredericks match is like the one match I really liked out of all his strong matches. But for the most part, it was a lot of stalling, a lot of cheating, a lot of slow pace. And I uh, felt here he was more hard hitting. You know, it was uh, kind of also not vintage Kenta, but it was he was more more straight laced here. Obviously, there was no bull club shenanigans here. This was more of a straight-up match, and like you mentioned, very hard-hitting. He was killing Goto with those kicks, working over the shoulder so he can get to the, the game-over submission, and that's what it came down to. He 
beat Goto down and got him in the game over right in the middle of the ring and forced Goto to tap out. Yeah, I, I liked the finishing sequence where Goto almost made it to the ropes and Kenta pulled him back. I almost started to mention that there was shenanigans because it just feels like in every Kenta match there has been a ton. And then when, upon like second thought, I was like, I don't know if there even was any, but just how slow and stalling some of the tactics from Kenta were early on, it just kind of dragged the match a bit down for me. But uh, anytime these two guys go at it, it's never bad. And that kind of proved to be the, the case here. It wasn't great, but it was pretty good. Kenta picks up two points. That's uh, got to be a pretty big win for him at this point in the tournament. But, you know, last year he, he went 4-0 and then lost the last five. So uh, we'll kind of see what happens going forward. Um, next match of the night, semi-main event, Zack Sabre Jr. takes on Evil with Dick Togo. And um, I got to say, Jeremy, I really liked this match. Well, I got to say, young boy, I really like this match, too. This was an evil match that I actually enjoyed. Um, even right from the beginning, you know, you had Dick Togo distracting Saber, and then Evil takes advantage. This is the stuff on the outside. I felt like Evil was just more aggressive than he's been um, since the turn, and I, I really liked the kind of determination he had on his face, and then this is stuff on the outside was really good, and then just everything that happened in the ring was just really good. Uh, you know... I don't want to be I don't want to be that guy and be a hater, but I have to be a little bit. I did notice how some of the heel work, especially on the outside, that he was employing seemed to work. Do you know why I think it worked so well here and it didn't in other matches previously? Why? Because little known secret, Zack Saber Jr. When he's a face, he is an incredible baby face and he's incredible at getting sympathy especially look at his frame (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah man he uh i kind of anticipated them doing sort of like a heel versus heel story with one being the more evil heel probably evil but zach reverted almost to baby face right away so much so that i saw people talking about him having a face turn because of this match and i was like no (laughs) it's the g1 like you know, especially when you have a monster, when you have two heels, someone has to kind of play the face for the match. And uh, that's what Zach did here. And I thought Zach really put over a lot of the offense of Evil and did a lot of big favors from not to take anything away from Evil, but I thought Zach did a better job getting sympathy than, say, Hiromu or Okada or Naito did in their matches earlier this year with Evil. Yeah, Sayer did a great job here and definitely was kind of in that almost an underdog kind of role, and he was, like, fighting from underneath the whole match. and you The know, whole match? Yeah, Evil was just kind of bruising him and also a lot of shenanigans, you know, exposing the turnbuckle. Um, you know, we saw, you know, Dick Togo every once in a while would kind of jump up here. Um, and then it, they, it, they overdid it. Yeah, they did overdo it. Um, and then anytime Saber, like, would mount the, the smallest comeback, Evil would kind of either counter him or kind of cut him off, and so just continuing yeah. to have to fight from underneath there's a big superplex from evil um he went for everything is evil after that evil blocked uh, or saber blocked that and then evil went for or then saber went for the exact driver and evil blocked that and saber did a cradle got a near fall off of that um yeah once once i saw that um evil was kind of eating him alive a little bit and we were getting the various cradles. I was like, oh, I think I think Zack Sabre Jr. is about to beat this man. <laughs> and when I saw um, hit him hit him with that clutch, uh, what is that move called? The European clutch. 
Yeah, the European Clutch, the one that uh, I don't know, Marty Jones or whoever it was. Who's the uh, Who's the GM over at NXT UK? Oh uh, man, I'm picturing his face, Johnny Saint. Yeah, that's the Johnny Saint pin, the famous one he does. And once I saw him hit that, I was like, oh my god, I think he won. And then one, two, three, and I was like, oh, we got an upset. And I was so happy because I hate evil so much. <laughs> um, I do think they overdid the uh, the shenanigans and the run-ins and the ref bumps and the stuff with the corner. Like, it, it was overdone, but it kind of did make Zach, you know, kind of made it seem like he overcame the odds. So I sort of get it, but not a huge fan of all that. But overall, still a physical match. Still a good pace. Um, this sort of falls into line with what we've talked about in the past with Evil. Sweet spot, 15 minutes. It didn't overstay its welcome. I think if they'd gone another five minutes, I wouldn't be talking about liking this match that much, honestly. And I'm glad to see Zach pick up a win. <laughs> right. It's one thing where you're sitting through maybe like eight to ten minutes of a match and then a shenanigans come to sitting through like 20 to 30 minutes of a match and then a bunch of shenanigans comes and the match has a screwy finish. Um, sure. And like you mentioned here, there was a ref bump. Um, Togo and Evil come in and they're working over Saber, but Saber fights back. He's a car- cross arm brick on Togo. Um, Saber blocks a low blow. I really like that. So Evil goes for like the mule kick low blow. Sable- Saber blocks it there. Uh, Sable? Yeah, <laughs> Saber blocks him um, and, <laughs> uh, into an ankle lock. Um, then Evil throws him into the exposed buckles. Um, ref comes back in. He starts falls for a near fall. He goes for the everything is evil. Saber blocked that and then hits the European clutch there and gets the win. Yeah, and you know, um, Evil was able to look strong. Like I said, he took the majority of this match, so it wasn't like even it was it's probably 80 20 you know right and we've seen that zach can tap anybody out he can also roll anybody up and that's exactly what he did here um so i enjoyed the match yeah so uh two questions here first from reddit user grunty dodd says was that evil's best match since lockdown notice it was in that 15 to 20 minute sweet spot where are the odds gato will notice that and book him accordingly you know, I I don't know if it was for sure his best match. I know there's some people that were big fans and proponents of the Hiromu match, others who seem to enjoy the Naito match. But I, you know, I wouldn't tout this as being like, oh my god, everything he did before this sucked, and this was the best. But for me, I would say it was his best match since the turn, personally, or at least you know, in a, maybe in a long time. I don't know, but uh. It's not far off from, you know, at least the Hiromu match. Yeah, I really like the Hiromu match a lot. Um, so the next question here we have from Wes Hanley from the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. He says, why has ZSJ got such a baby face now all of a sudden? Out here looking like Suji new face all of a sudden. Um, I feel like Saber's always been pretty clean shaven and it's always kind of, kind of had a baby face kind of look. I think he's talking about him being portrayed as a baby face in the match, no? Well, he says he's out here looking like Suji. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe he was referring to him being in the match. But, um, like we mentioned, it, it's the G1. You're going to have heel versus heel matches. And not all the time can you do, like, two heels out, you know, out trying to out each other, out heel each other. 
sometimes one of the heels has to play the babyface in, in peril for that matchup and that matchup alone. Um, and once we look at the schedule, see who Saber is going against next. He's probably maybe he'll be going against a babyface and he'll be the heel once again. This wasn't a, a babyface turn whatsoever. Yeah, and Zach actually had some very uh, comical um, comments during his post match where he basically said. Uh, he was like, you know, I beat the former IWGP champ. The next match, I've got Naito, and he's the current IWGP champ. I'm going to tap him out like I always do. And then once I've done that, I'll have secured a title shot. I can just fuck off for the rest of the tournament. <laughs> I don't even need to win the, the G1. And I could just, you know, Suzuki or – or uh, uh, he's like, you know, either Suzuki or um, Chi. <laughs> or Taichi can win this. Good luck to them. Uh, I've got, you know, the tag team titles to kind of worry about. So it's kind of funny that, like, he's talking about not caring about the G1, and so is Taichi because they just care about the tag titles. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> well, you know, him not, in a way, not winning G1 was kind of his strategy last year, too. Remember, he put a lot of emphasis on, like, beating Okada because he wanted to get the title shot at Royal Quest. That was his strategy the year before when he wanted to beat Kenny. Yeah, uh, I don't think the strategy has worked out very well for him. <laughs> yeah, Zach, you need to change the game plan up, man. You try to win all the matches, not just beat the champion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, so let's t- talk about the main event here. We have uh, the reigning double, I, you know, I don't even know what you call him now, but the double champ, uh, Tetsuya Naito, uh, defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi, 27 minutes and 16 seconds. I freaking love this match. This was my match of the night. This is my match of the tournament thus far. This was incredible. We got Tanahashi in like turning back the clock, um, throwing out like a peak performance here, doing the high fly flow from the top, the dragon screws, the dragon sleeper. This was like a, a classic Tanahashi match here. And, you know, the whole story, you know, Tanahashi's been on the losing end with the whole the tag team with the Golden Aces and, you know, knowing he's not at top-level status here. And I felt like he was trying his hardest here on this first night to give it his all and to prove that he can still be the ace but just came up a little bit short in the end. We had a question from Kevin Crawford about this, and I'd like to address what you said and also what he said. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and read that, and then I'll give you my rebuttal. Yeah, so a question from Kevin Crawford. He says, Tanahashi's performance on the opening night of B-Block was incredible. When was the last time he looked this good in singles action? I think it's his best match since the final versus Ibushi in 2018. Chris Jericho versus Hiroshi Tanahashi, four and a half stars. Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr., September 15th, four stars. Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr., uh, August 31st, four stars. Tanahashi versus Will Ospreay, last year's G1, block finals, four and three quarters. Him and Kota Ibushi last year in the G1, four and three quarters. Him and Evil last year in the G1, four and three quarters. Uh, do you guys kind of see what I'm saying here? This man has been working tag matches all year with Ibushi. The one singles match he had this year, aside from uh, the Chris Jericho match, which keep in mind, people, we've called this a forgotten classic, and it seems it's already become a forgotten classic. Because people are talking about him 
turning back the clock. This man ain't got to turn no back, no clock back. The clock never went back. It's been here all <laughs> along. He did have one less than great performance on June 22nd against Tai Chi in a singles match. But come on, are we really going to blame that on? Let's take let's take a look at who he was wrestling and what kind of match they had. Was that Tanahashi's fault, or maybe it was part of that story about him being the struggling team member between him and Ibushi? I would beg to argue that's probably the case here. Tanahashi has had classic after classic in the tag team ranks this year. Tanahashi ain't rolled no clock back. The clock ain't gone back. He is still the motherfucking ace. This man puts in banger after banger after banger. Not in wrestler of the year contention right now is because he's he's been in tag team action all year long. If he was wrestling in singles, he'd be in wrestler of the year contention right now. Yeah. Oh, and if you put if you put him in that A block, oh, in the A block, yeah. And, Forget about and, it. And maybe turning the clock back maybe it's not the right expression, but I just felt like this was your classic Tanahashi main event. You know, we always don't see him in the main event. He hasn't been in the main event even. I mean, also he was in that G1 finals. Uh, he wasn't in the main event in the Dome recently. Like, this was just like that traditional, like, New Japan main event with Tanahashi in the main event. Wrestle- this was a Tanahashi match. Like, Naito was wrestling Tanahashi's match here, and I don't know. I just felt like it was an incredible performance here. Bro, think about last year. Like, he had the matches with, like, just look, if you go back and you look at his G1, like, he had a four-match series with Zack Sabre that was incredible. The Kenta match, the Okada match, the Osprey match. Like, he had, it was just a year ago, and he was destroy. like, he was destroying the star ratings. Like, (laughs) and it's not, and I, for simplicity's sake, or sake, I just read some of Dave's ratings. That doesn't even include, like, if I went to cage match, you're looking at all eights and nines. Like, this guy is still wrestling at the same level he has always wrestled at. Like, ain't ain't been no... The only reason that people might might think that maybe he's, like, a little farther back is, like, what you mentioned. He hasn't been in the quote-unquote main event scene, but he's been in the semi-main event scene all last year and he's been in the semi-main event scene this year wrestling in tag team matches against dangerous techers. This man's still got it. Um, as far as the match though, I don't love this match as, as much as everybody else. Dun, dun, dun. But I did like it a lot. Obviously I think you'd have to be brain dead not to like it. Uh, it, it was an incredible match, but do you know what this reminded me of? What? This felt, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of similar to like Steamboat and Flair, but in 1994. Mm. Like when they've already, or maybe 93, I can't remember when they had the uh, their series of matches. It was either 93 or 94. Um, it was definitely 94, now I think about it. So... Those two guys obviously had so many classic matches, never had a bad match against each other. And the two or three match series they had in WCW in 1994 was, you know, match of the, at least in North America, match of the year caliber, you know, for the time, um, at, at least in that promotion. But it was levels beneath what they were capable of doing just four or five years prior to that. And it was not because of the psychology or, the timing or anything like that, it was completely due to the physicality. Like they couldn't physically do 
with the same pep, the same snap, the same gusto, what they'd done previously. That's what I saw here. I saw two guys who um, just – there was a little bit less of the athleticism. I felt like some of that was Naito. Yeah. There was like – there's a lot of like spots, especially the Destino spots where there was like some – stumbling around and maybe for some people that adds to the realism and the struggle of the match and that they buy more into that and they like it. And sometimes I'm that guy too. So I, that's why I'm mentioning it. The match itself overall, I'd still go four and a half. I I loved it. 27 minutes. This is my match at the tournament so far. Um, And that's a really incredible thing given the fact that there is no audible cheering from the crowd, you know, right. Um, Definitely the best Naito match since Wrestle Kingdom yeah. against Okada. Yeah, and despite the few Destino botches, I thought Naito did look uh, really good in this match. Like you mentioned, best we've seen him since the Okada match. Uh, yeah, overall, these guys just worked really well together. Great story here. Uh, well, the reason, I'm, the reason I mentioned the Flair-Steamboat series is because Flair and Steamboat both looked fantastic in that series, but they weren't at the level they'd been just a few years prior. Mm-hmm. That's what this match was to me. Still incredible. I don't know if these guys are ever going to be capable of having an, a truly bad match against one another because they're so familiar. They're, there's so much chemistry and history there. But it wasn't quite what it would have been, say, even two or three years ago. Honestly, I don't think it – I mean, think about like the Kenny Omega match that Naito had on night one, what, two years ago? Yeah. This Naito is not the same guy he was two years ago. Right. That being said, the match still freaking ruled. It really did. It ruled. And yeah. 27 minutes, I didn't even re- – to be honest with you, until we got in the air here, I didn't realize that they almost went down to the wire. Oh, I didn't. I was paying into the call because it was like 20 minutes, 25 I, minutes. I'm like, oh, are they, gonna, are they going for a draw? Are they going to do a draw? Or are they teasing the draw? Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was hyped when they were counting on the time there. And uh, – it was just some great counters, a lot of great counters of the Destino, of the, the Sling Blade. Tanahashi was doing reversals into Sling Blades look great. The, the Twist and Shouts look great. Yeah, he hit a lot of Twist and Shouts. He hit a lot of Sling Blades. And then towards the end of the match, he hit one standing uh, high fly flow. He hit one to the outside, too, which uh, his right knee hit the ground. And I was like, oh, God. Uh, but that's what he does in his big main events. So, um but he hit a standing um, uh, high fly flow towards the end of the match, and I was like, oh, my God, he hit it. All he has to do now is hit one more, and it is over. And he didn't even, like, play to the crowd or hesitate. He ran up, but, like, Naito had so much ring awareness that he was able to move out of the uh, way right at the last minute. And I was watching this match with my girlfriend, and she was like, Naito's going to move. And I was like, no, he's not. <laughs> I was like, Tanahashi's got this locked up. And at the last second he moved. And I was like, I was like, I saw my dreams like come crashing down because I really thought Tanahashi was going to pick up the win here this evening, get the upset win and, and get a title shot locked yeah. up for himself. Me and a lot of people that in our pickums thought the same thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I was definitely, I sold myself on the Tanahashi comments pre COVID and the fact that it seemed like they were building to a match between those two. I was like, it's you know it's gonna be the big upset, locked in stone. Tanahashi's getting his title match, but no, they wanted to keep get Naito dominant, give him a big win here. He moves out the way of the high fly flow. Um, he hits the running destino, gets a near fall, goes for another one. Tana blocks that. 
blocks a palm strike. Naito hits a Val- uh, Valentina and then hits another Destino and gets the win. Yeah, so at this point in the tournament, my two highest, most recommended matches, and I'm sure you'd agree, Suzuki and Ishii from night one, and then night two, um, Tanahashi and Naito. And those both of those matches just delivered in spades. Um, post-match, Tanahashi had like just a uh, heartbreaking promo where he's on the ground talking about how he worked so hard to get himself into G1 shape, and it didn't matter because he still lost, and... He didn't expect Naito to be so so much further ahead than him at this point in their careers, but he is. So, you know, he's going to keep working harder, and the G1's not over. On the flip side, Naito is talking about how, uh, you know, basically he's like, you know, Tanahashi, this was a big loss for him. This was kind of make or break in the tournament, and losing to me at this point kind of knocks him out. And I can't say that I completely disagree. I think there's a good chance... We see it every year. I remember, uh, like the match that, that I just mentioned two years ago, Naito and Kenny Omega went out there on night one or night two, and they had a near five star classic. But when he lost to Kenny Omega, it was like, boom, he's done in the tournament, and he kind of was. And I think that this is got to be a huge detractor for anyone that was hoping for Tanahashi to, you know to pick up a, a tournament win. I mean, it's a long tournament, but when you lose to the, to the reigning champion night one, that's a key indicator that you're probably done. Right. And also kind of very similar to last year too. He faced Okada on the first night there in Dallas. Oh a, yeah. Same had, thing. Had a really great match of an old rival, but kind of sealed his fate for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, this was great, man. This was just so great. I know I had some, um, uh, some, what might be seemingly bad comments, but Again, still the best match of the tournament so far. And it, it's just so great to see a large crowd in a large building with that much excitement, seeing these two guys give it their all. You know, it felt like a big time New Japan main event. Um, I loved it. Yeah. So we've got some questions here. Uh, first from Uber, Uber Monk says Does Naito remain champion between now and Wrestle Kingdom? Do they split up the belts before Wrestle Kingdom? Uh, we've gotten this question a lot. I don't think they're going to split up the belts and I think he will be champion by the end of, by at least wrestle kingdom. Maybe even Pat, I think he might even retain it. It's possible. I definitely think he's going to the dome with the belts. Yeah. I I think he's going to retain it coming out of the dome this year, depending, especially if hypothetically it's Okada. I don't think Okada's beating him in the dome. Yeah. Uh, next question from Ricky. Naito pulls out another terrific match in which he is going over. Is Josh's theory about Naito looking correct. I have one reason I didn't do a bracket is because the more I looked at the scenarios, the one scenario that feels unlikely, but also in my gut kind of feels like it's a high possibility, but it's so crazy that I can't put it on paper is Naito actually winning the G one as the champion. And, uh, you know, the G1 champion or the IWGP champion always does very well overall. So this is par for the course at this point. You know, night one, the IWGP champion winning, that's that's nothing. That's pretty normal. We gave you the last two years where the same thing happened. Uh, so it remains to be seen. But I, I kind of think that that is a it's – it's one of those scenarios that I think could really happen and I haven't heard too many other people talk about. 
Right, but I think specifically here he was talking about, remember you had a theory of Naito performs better when he's going over. Oh, is that my... I thought he, I thought he listened last week and was talking about my theory of uh, Naito um, <laughs> winning the tournament, which is kind of what I've been thinking of. Okay, yeah, I think, I think there are a lot of guys who are, you know... Um, what's funny, he's like... Some guys like Hulk Hogan do better... Like they, some of those types of guys would do better when they were losing. But some people, like, do better when they're winning and they know they're going to win. And uh, yeah, I kind of think Naito sometimes shows tendencies to that, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some matches you can point to, but still, I still look at the Kenta match from this year, some of the Suzuki matches where he won that one year with that, that that IC series, and so it doesn't always the theory's not always 100 percent correct, but I can definitely see some points where it doesn't seem like that. I'll tell you one thing though, when he's when he knows he's going to lose, <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question here from Highest Fly Flow it says the High Fly Flow to the outside. The Japanese commentary called it the High Fly Flow. Charlton calls it the Highest Fly Flow. Kelly calls it the aces high, and NJPAW Twitter calls it the high fly attack. Let's end this. Oh so- my god! <laughs> Let's end this saga. What will Kiss call it from now on? I didn't really even realize so many. There are so many variations. You've definitely done your homework more than me. Uh, I mean, Jeremy, did you know about this? I did not realize. It. I do remember hearing Kevin Kelly say the aces high sometimes, uh, but I didn't realize that. Some people were calling it the highest fly flow. Um, I think he's got a shirt where his shirt says highest fly flow. Uh, but for me, because but that wouldn't really make sense because you would think the highest would be the one that finishes people, and the one that finishes people is the <laughs> one that when they're on their no, back. the highest would be the one that's actually physically the highest, which is the one to the outside. Mm. I don't know. I just call it the high fly flow. They're all variations of the high fly flow. So I just call them all high fly flow. I mean, I could fuck off and start calling five star frog splashes. If you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just going to call it a high fly flow, you know, a standing high fly flow or whatever you want to call it. But I think that we need a ruling from Tanahashi. I think like he needs to be keyed in to what everyone is referring to his baby as and Maybe he's cool with it. Maybe he's like they're all correct. I think we need to have a fan boat. We need to get an app, and we all. Dude, <laughs> you should um, you should do a Twitter poll and ask people what they think it is. Yeah, we can do that. Let's let's get some. <laughs> let's see what the people think. <laughs> um, so that wraps it up for that questions on that match. A few other uh, random G one questions here. So from EMJ does PR. He says, "Which returning wrestler impressed you guys the most, and why?" Uh, I mean, Will Ospreay, and it's just because Will Ospreay's great, and that's, I mean, I don't really have any in-depth reasons. I mean, aside from his physique and the fact that he's able to do it, he's still able to do with his physique, but he hasn't left, he hasn't lost a step, and he's only had three matches in, what, eight months? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with Ospreay as well. There's a, there's a lot of question on what his style would be or what he would look like, and uh, I thought he looked great and was hitting all the spots as usual. I think you could make an argument for Jay White as well, but I I would rather make the argument for Will Ospreay at this time. Yeah. 
Uh, next question here from Rambo and Slam Pig. Were there any individual wrestlers or particular matches that either exceeded or fell short of your expectations? I was pleasantly surprised by Evil versus GS- ZSJ and Osprey versus Yujiro. Um, I thought that Jay White and um, Shingo exceeded my expectations. I would agree that Evil and ZSJ exceeded my expectations. Although I think that those two guys have worked well together in their series of matches in the past. So not totally surprised, but you know, uh, it, it definitely exceeded the, the biggest miss for me personally was the main event of a block night one, um, Ibushi and Okada. Yeah. Pretty much same for me. The match that exceeded my expectations was, uh, evil and Zack Sabre Jr. I was just plenty surprised how much I liked that match. I also really enjoyed Osprey and Nudro. Um, even though it was a seven minute match, I really liked that match for what it was. Uh, but yeah, for falling short, definitely the the Ibushi Okada match, especially you know just thinking about Wrestle Kingdom um, that ma- the match they had there and expecting to get something close to that, and it was nowhere near that. So it definitely fell short. Osprey Ujiro is exactly what I thought it would be. I don't know. I was expecting Yujiro to, to mail it in even more. I mean, he did mail it in. He did like one or two cool moves and mailed the rest of that shit in. <laughs> we got two two cool moves. That's more than we got this this whole pandemic. <laughs> um, next question here from uh, Josh number two. Biggest surprise result of the two nights. Also, were you surprised at how many fans were in attendance? Looks like they had they might be ready for a pretty full Tokyo Dome. Well, uh, as far as the attendance goes, from what we understand right now, they because they've been handling COVID pretty well, they've lifted the um, you know um, amounts. They've lifted, they've raised it up to fifty percent, and they've also lifted the cap that they had on previously. So, right now, it seems like indoors they can do up to fifty percent, provided they're following all the guidelines and you know regulations with masks and everything. Um, for most sporting events, they can go up to 50% is what I understand. Yeah, so uh, definitely everything going the right direction there. So hopefully come dome season, they can run in the dome and we can fill that dome up um, a little bit more than we were thinking we could. Maybe, we'll see. Uh, as far as like most surprising, um, I don't know. I mean, I I guess it was kind of surprising. I didn't expect Yano to be Sonata. That was a little surprising. Um, I, was there? What was the biggest shock for you, man? I don't know. Trying to think. I guess. Um, like I, I felt like Ibushi Okada was kind of telegraphed. Uh, maybe I could say Evil ZSJ. Yeah, for me, it probably have to be between Evil and ZSJ, and then for me personally, Tanahashi and Naito because I worked myself yes. into a shoot. I worked myself yeah. into a shoot and thought Tanahashi was for sure was winning. So once Naito moved and Tanahashi missed that high fly flow, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> there, there's, there's no kayfabe reason to think that, that that's a shocking win. But when you're looking at from like the insidery booking smart uh, perspective, it, it's, that kind of match seemed like it was prime for a Tanahashi win on night two. So I, I could definitely agree with you on that. Uh, you know, on that one for sure. Um, and then last question here from Reddit user Mike Moose 27. What is your most anticipated match of the whole G1? Which I think we talked about that last week. Um, for me, it's still Shingo and Okada. For me, it, it, it was Shingo and Okada, but 
I, I don't know if Okada's coming out here and uh, not going to give us the, the full go. Um, I'm not sure. I about mean, that. Osprey and Ishii is like a close second for me right now. Yeah, I think Osprey Ishii definitely elevated for me. Um, just because of, I don't know if we're going to continue this Okada Shingo story, and I have to see exactly when the Okada Shingo match is, and maybe it's a, in a part in this, the tournament where he, he's picking things back up. Nice. And so, uh, before we preview the upcoming G1 shows, we've got to tell you about our friends over at Manscaped and their Lawnmower 3.0. The Manscaped engineering team has spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. This thing is the third generation of trimmer featuring a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. Yeah, this battery is going to last up to 90 minutes, so you guys can take a longer shave. Water-resistant technology allows you to groom in the shower, so easy cleanups. And uh, the LED light feature, which is really cool, illuminates grooming areas so you can get a closer, more precise trimming. Uh, they also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. So if you're listening to me right now, I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. Yes, use our promo code SUPLEX. At manscaped.com, you get 20% off and free shipping. That's the code suplex at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping. You help yourself. You help this show out all around. It's all a win. Uh, You know, you can be the one, like in G1 Climax. You could be the one and use our promo code suplex. Clean it up, guys. Uh, so now let's take a look at the upcoming cards for the G1 this week. So G1 will be back in action on Wednesday, September 23rd. A Block will be back in action. Um, opening the match, we got an um, opening show. We have Yuya Yomura and Gabriel Kidd. So that'll be our young line opener for this night. Um, any prediction on that one? I'm just going to go uh, Kidd. He hasn't gotten any points on the board, so we'll we'll keep it parody-based. Yeah, I'm going to go Kidd as well. Uh, second match of the night, we've got Jeff Cobb taking on Shingo Takagi. Both guys coming off of a loss, so zero points on the board here. Uh, what are we thinking when it comes to this match? Uh, I'm, I'm leaning towards a dragon Shingo Takagi here. I feel like he's going to end up you know, a pretty good point total here. And so I think he needs to kind of get back on the, you know, back on track here and get a win over Cobb. Yeah, if I recall, Jeff Cobb was one of the few guys that defeated Shingo in kind of an upset last year. I could be wrong on that, but I feel like that was the case. Yeah, Cobb did beat Shingo last year. So I see Shingo, uh, you know, picking up a, uh, you know, getting his win back here. And um, this is a match that's going to tell us a lot about Jeff Cobb and where he's at within New Japan at this current time. So this is one I'm looking forward to, and I've got Shingo winning. The next up, third match of the evening, we have the Rainmaker, Kazuso Okada, taking on the Tokyo Pimp, Yujiro Takahashi. Uh, You know, these two guys have feuded all year. Terrible matches. I'm not looking forward to it. I'm expecting Okada to win, but there's a part of me that's like, are we about to see Okada go on a losing streak and Yujiro to finally like put the nail in the coffin to cement, you know, his status within within <laughs> their like uh, rivalry? Right. Yeah, this is my least anticipated match of the whole tournament. I've hated all the matches they've had in this pandemic era. Um, and yeah, you know, it's one of those things like Okada keeps beating him, 
And so I could see somehow maybe you have Master Heater out there, Gato, something, some kind of distraction or something, count out DQ, some kind of wacky finish here, and Yujiro pulls one over Okada. Yeah, I anticipate an Okada win, but be wary of the, uh, you know, the spoiler win for Yujiro, uh, setting Okada off to a 0 and 2 in the tournament that's a, that upset victory is a possibility for real. Then next up we have the never open weight champion Minoru Suzuki taking on his stable mate and one half of the IWGP tag team champions Taichi. This is kind of a pick em, Honestly, I know on paper the obvious answer would be Suzuki, but I don't, because I don't anticipate either of these guys going super far in the tournament. Um, I'm just going to go with Suzuki I, I think that makes more sense for me personally. But for those of you who are, you know, hotly anticipating some sort of uh, inner working feud within Suzuki Goon, you're probably like waiting for this match, you know, and, and super excited. I think it's gonna be interesting, but uh, I've got Suzuki going over just I, I but, it, you know, I'm like 51 percent to 49, honestly. Yeah, this match can definitely go either way. I'm going to go Suzuki as well, just because he is the never open weight champion right now. And if Tai Chi were to get a win, um, that could potentially set up a title match on the line. And I think with Tai Chi as IWGP Tag Team Champion after the G1, I think Dangerous Tickers will be back focusing on the tag division and defending those titles. So I don't think it would really make sense for him to beat Suzuki here. Interesting point. Both guys have two points at this point in the tournament. So yeah. Uh, fifth match of the night, we have uh, Stablemates and Chaos, Tomohiro Ishii taking on Will Ospreay. Ospreay coming in with two points, Ishii coming in with zero. Yeah, man, this is a tough one. I feel like this was another one that can kind of go either way. It can go either way. I'm going to go with Will Ospreay just because Ishii is one of those guys. He he sometimes does very well in the tournaments, but other times not so well. This is a very tough block just looking at who's in it. And I think Will for Will Ospreay to stay competitive, he's going to need wins over guys like Tomohiro Ishii. Um, that way they can avoid him beating some of the tougher opponents that he has you know, going forward. So I think it makes a lot of sense for him to beat Tomohiro Ishii. But you're right, it could go either way. Yeah, I'm also going to go Osprey just from a kayfabe perspective. Ishii took a, you know, more of a beating in his first A-block match against Suzuki, where Osprey had a really quick seven-minute match. So I feel like Correct. Osprey is going to be coming in more fresh. Ishii is going to be more wearing down, even though he did get a few days break. That was still a tough battle with Suzuki. So, yeah, I'm going to go Osprey to get the win here, advance to four points. On a night where there are some interesting matchups, this is the one thing that truly screams like match of the night, and, uh, you know, a standout match of the tournament for me. So I'm very excited to see this happen. I wouldn't be upset if Ishii wins, but I've got Osprey. And then the main event of the evening, we have the Golden Golden Star Kota Ibushi taking on Switchblade Jay White. This is a rematch from Wrestle Kingdom, a rematch from last year's G1 Finals. My thinking here, Ibushi talked uh, in his post-match about how he defeated both Okada and Jay White last year in the G1 to win the block and the tournament definitively. But since then, he's taken losses to both of them, and they've both kind of progressed their careers past him. So this is kind of a, a little redemption arc for him. I'm just going to guess 
based on history and Gato's booking that Ibushi picks up the win against Jay White here, gets himself off to a four point uh, start. And this might be the beginning of him not winning the tournament. In my opinion, I think his little story arc is to kind of regain his foothold, show that he's still on the same level as these two top stars. And I think this might be a key indicator that Kotobushi's for sure not winning the block. That's my, that's my thinking, but Jay could, you know, this is a 50, 50 match. Right. Again, this one could go either way, but I kind of like the story of Abushi defeating the two guys he lost to at the Dome, building some momentum up there. Because, you know, pre-COVID, that, that singles route, he was just losing and just kind of, you know, in a slump here. And so, like you mentioned, kind of regaining some footing here, kind of proving he's on the same level as these guys. So, yeah, I'm also going Abushi here. Kamagoye gets the win. But, yeah, it's probably going to be the beginning of the end for Abushi, though. So let's move on to the next night, Thursday, September 24th, B-Block action. We open up the show with Yota Suji against Yuyamura. I've got Suji here getting his win back against Yuyamura from earlier in the tournament. Yeah, same. Not much analysis there. Second match of the night, Hiroki Goto taking on Sonata. Uh, both of them uh, having zero coming in with zero points. This is kind of a make-or-break match for both of them in the tournament. Um... I think I'm just going to say I think I've got Sonata here just because I think I've gotten projected to do pretty well in the tournament. But um, we've talked about how some guys get off to slow starts and then do well. So there is a possibility. Goto's got enough uh, you know, stock in the company. He could beat Sonata here, but I think it would be wise for them to heat Sonata up a little quicker and give him the win first match of the night. Yeah, so I actually have Sonata winning the B block and going to the the finals of the G one. So um, I definitely think he needs to you know, eventually get on a roll here, and so I think he's gonna get a win here over Goto. Goto's a guy that you can beat, but again, you know, once again, it's a match where I think Goto could win if they want to go that direction too. But like you were saying, I think they need to heat Sonata up, uh, especially if he's gonna end up in the finals here. I think he needs a win over a guy like Goto. Yeah, it's like if now there is another way of thinking about it. If you're going to have Sonata beat most of the top guys in the tournament, then Goto is your utility guy that can easily beat him and it kind of be forgotten by the end of the tournament. So they, I'm not saying it's a foregone conclusion. Goto could beat him, but I think Sonata should beat Goto and just kind of move on and we go from there. Yep. Then the third match of the night, we have the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, taking on the provisional KOPW 2020, Tori Yano. This should be semi-entertaining, but I got Tanahashi beating Yano pretty easily here. Yeah, I'm going to go with the ace as well. Uh, get on the board there, get some points, and then yeah, Yano will move on to he'll be a one-on-one. Uh, fourth match of the night, Juice Robinson taking on Kenta, both coming in with two points. So uh, I got I got Kenta here. Okay, uh, I got Juice on this one. Um, my my thinking here is, you know, Kenta is the provisional or not provisional. He is the uh, the contract holder for the IWGP US Championship, and so we know Juice is typically in that US mix when he's in singles role. So I can see Juice getting a win over Kenta, and then challenging for the briefcase at Power Struggle. Definitely possible, especially if both guys are staying in the country. I was sort of thinking that, hypothetically, maybe Kenta goes back to the States. It seems like Juice is not. 
Mm. So it was part of my thinking, but uh, I don't really know the inner workings of how that's going to go down. It's just, I see Kenta going into the final night against uh, Naito. I think he needs to have a pretty strong point total. Juice seems totally beatable for a guy like Kenta. So that's kind of why I'm picking Kenta here. All right. Fifth match of the night. We've got Yoshihashi taking on Prince of Darkness Evil. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to go with Evil here. Um, obviously, he had the big upset loss on night one. Uh, this guy was just the double champion not too long ago. Um, he's going to end up with, you know, a very high point total here. So, he's got to take out a guy like Yoshihashi here. Yeah, I, I don't see a reason for him to beat uh, Evil at all. So, then moving on to the main event of the evening, we have uh, Tetsuya Naito, the current Double IWGP Intercontinental Champion. He will be going against one half of the IWGP Tag Team Champions, Zack Sabre Jr. So this is a uh, very interesting matchup here. Uh, like we mentioned, Sabre's whole plan has been uh, surrounding this matchup here. He wants to beat Naito so he can cash in and get a title shot um, all before the Tokyo Dome and not worry about having to win the G1 here. Uh, but I think Naito is going to get the win here. I think Naito is going to start off pretty hot here. And so, yeah, I think he's going to get the, the win here. I think it makes a lot of sense for Naito to get the win here. Um, he mentioned in the post-match comments that Zach is maybe his uh, worst style matchup. And that's proven to be the case. We've seen Zach beat him multiple times, both in New Japan Cup and G1 matches previously. So, um in their series, I actually think Zach has more wins than Naito. And at this current time, I don't see a reason that Zach should defeat him. I think this, this is a needed big win for Naito where he's at in the company right now. So I, I anticipate them that. Now, one thing I will say, they always have really good matches against one another. And this is actually my projected match of the night. Um, and yeah, I think Naito's going over. Nice. So that takes us to Sunday, September 27th. We'll be back with A-Block action. Uh, the, the show will open up with Yoto Suji taking on Gabriel Kidd. Um, going to go with um, Gabriel Kidd here to get the win back from Suji from last week. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go with Kidd. I'm just going to keep booking these guys to just keep beating one another, and he's going to beat Suji, so... <laughs> Then the uh, first tournament matchup, we have Taichi taking on Tokyo Pimp Yujiro Takahashi. Ooh, this is one of the least anticipated matches for many people. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, to me, I just think Taichi is higher in the pecking order. I think Yujiro's here to kind of, I think if anything, Yujiro's going to be spoiling people. And I don't think Taichi is someone worthy of Yujiro's spoiling abilities. So I think Tai Chi winning just makes more sense to me personally. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. I think, yeah, Tai Chi is the right call here. You know, he's a champion, higher in the pecking order. I think, yeah, he, does, he needs to be a guy like Yujiro. Next, we got Jeff Cobb against Minoru Suzuki, third match of the night. And uh, this is a match that I've got circled as one of the more anticipated Jeff Cobb matches. We've seen these guys in the past, and they've been very good with one another. I think Cobb needs to come under the learning tree of Minoru Suzuki. Um, I think Suzuki is someone who can teach him a lot about the New Japan style, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this match. This is one where I think, I think Cobb has a good chance at beating Minoru Suzuki. 
Yeah, I'm going with Cobb on this one. Um, so if we, if our predictions are right, he would have lost his first two matchups. Um, yep. He needs to get something here. Uh, I think a win over Suzuki would be big. Plus, it could set him up for a never tile shot down the line if he's going to stay in Japan uh, for power struggle. So, yeah, I can see Cobb getting the, the win here and kind of slowing down Suzuki. I agree. That's Logically, that makes sense to me. So I'm going to go Cobb against Suzuki. Then fourth match of the evening, we have the Golden Star Kota Ibushi taking on the Stone Pit Bull Tomohiro Ishii. This, now that I'm looking at this, uh, what night is this? This is coming up on Sunday. This might be one of the best overall cards of the entire tournament. Um, it just continues to get better. And Ibushi and Ishii is one of the greatest G1 matches I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> that was our fight of the year uh, a couple years ago. And I, I just can't imagine this not being spectacular. Um, I'm going to go Ishii on this one. Yeah, I'm also thinking Ishii just because, you know, we got Kota with uh, two straight wins here. Ishii with two straight losses. Um, I think Ishii, he's, he's probably not going to score super high, but he's definitely going to get in that eight, at least eight to six range somewhere. So he needs to get some win somewhere. So, yeah, I think he'll get the win here. After that, we have the uh, fifth match of the night, uh, the aerial assassin Will Ospreay against the dragon Shingo Takaki, a rematch of the Super Junior Finals from last year and the match of the year from last year. Yeah, this should be absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm going to go with Shingo here to get the big win back uh, from Osprey from that uh, Super Junior Final, uh, but expecting a, an incredible match. This will probably be... One of the matches of the night. I mean, the last three matches could all be match of the night, but I think this one definitely has really high potential. I agree with you. Uh, they like to book guys getting their wins back during tournaments, but I'm going to go with Will Ospreay. Mm. Um, I think it makes total sense what you just, meant, just mentioned about Shingo. And the only reason I'm going to say Will is going to beat him is I'm just going to kind of like do this what if hypothetically they're telling a story where shingo like will has shingo's number right that that could definitely be a story they're telling and at this point because i really just don't know <laughs> i don't know how these brackets are going to go out and i'm just kind of booking in a vacuum um i'm just gonna say will just to kind of like throw that little wrinkle in there but you know what it, it honestly it probably will be shingo we'll see again i mean it, it can go either way yeah, it absolutely could. I mean, that's this is a tough one to call. Yeah, this is a block. It's a tough one. Uh, the final match of the night here, we have the Rainmaker, Kazushika Okada, taking on uh, the Switchblade, Jay White. And again, these are two former stablemates. We've seen these guys in the Tokyo Dome. We've seen them in Madison Square Garden. We've seen them in Suma Hall. Like, this is uh, one of those perennial major main events you know, top four guys in New Japan style match. And it's the main event here. And uh, I don't know who I got. Who? What are you thinking? I'm going to go with the Switchblade Jay White. I think Okada's going to hit this this losing slump, this losing streak in the beginning of the tournament. Last time these two gentlemen faced off, I believe it was G1 Supercard in Madison Square Garden, where Okada defeated Jay White to regain his IWGP title. So, Kind of what we see, like we mentioned, that, that kind of parody tournament booking where guys kind of get big wins back in tournaments. So I think Jay is going to kind of get the big win back here on Okada. And then Okada is going to have to fight 
hard. He's going to have to win his next six, essentially, if he wants to win the block. I'm going to go with Jay as well, only because I don't really know what's happening here. I think if Okada is going to ultimately be booked to win the tournament, then it might be great to have him go on this short little losing streak and kind of redeem himself. I'm also kind of banking on the idea that Jay White might um, need to win a tiebreaker over over Okada on the final night to to, to, uh, progress and that this might be a pivotal match. So this is a very, very important match for the remainder of the tournament. Maybe one of the most important matches, the the match between Okada and Jay White. So um, I wouldn't be surprised, again, if Okada beat him. But uh, I'm going to hedge my bets and, and go with Jay White. All right. So those are the three upcoming shows that we have there. Bro, so, Sunday night is stacked. Yeah, dude. Sunday is going to be incredible. So Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday. Two nights of A block, one night of B block Should be um, Some nights just full of great professional wrestling So happy the G1 Climax Is back um, So now we, we gotta touch some stuff On some stuff that we uh, missed out On last week cause we had that marathon uh, G1 preview So some things we didn't touch on uh, And we'll just run through this Right we're not gonna give super analysis Just kind of quick thoughts so one thing that uh, happened uh, we didn't get to talk about was the conclusion of the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team uh, tournament to determine new champions. So on uh, New Japan Road, uh, September 9th, we had Gato and Taiji Ishimori defeating Master Wato and Risuke Taguchi, and then we had Desperado and Kanemaru defeating um, Bushi and Hiromu. And then the finals happened on September 11th, where um, Desperado and Kanemaru defeated Bushi and Hiromu again. So thoughts on Suzuki Gun as our new junior tag team champions and thus the overall junior tag team tournament? Um, I think this is one of the worst tournaments they've done in a, quite a while. <laughs> um, just, and it's not, not totally their fault. It's just the lack of depth within the junior tag team division. Like We, we only had one, maybe, quote-unquote, two real uh, tag teams. Um, these matches at the end were not bad, but they also weren't what I'd call classics. Uh, interesting thing about Desperado, uh, coming out with tape that had Hiromu's name written all over it. Um, Bushi taking the loss on the first night and then the second night, Hiromu being the one to take the fall. I think that's very telling of something maybe in the future between him and Desperado, especially given the history between those two. But it's sort of like this, like, uh, Suzuki-gun wins the belts back. They held them for quite a while in the past. And the best team that they could compete with, which is this LIJ team, um, they beat them back-to-back, both members. And it sort of puts them in the conundrum that I mentioned a few weeks ago. It's like, you know, if you end up beating the same team in the finals, the best team back-to-back, then who's left for you to challenge? Like, they've already eliminated all their challengers within a round-robin tournament. So... uh, uh, I, I don't have m- many like anticipations for this division going forward. I think Suzuki Goon's the best pr- you know team to hold the titles for the time being until a good team kind of rises. But um, I I think that there could be a chance of something down the line within maybe say a quote unquote hypothetical Super Juniors. I'm not saying that we've heard anything about that, but it's like. If Hiromu took a loss and he doesn't have a belt right now, why are you building a program between him and Desperado? 
you know um that's not something that could like be in a dome or anything like that but it could be something maybe if they ended up doing like a junior tournament where those two guys might be able to face off within the you know kind of built off of this match yeah that makes a lot of sense and i i hope we do somehow get a super juniors towards the end of the year that would be a great way to kind of close off this very weird year of 2020 um agree with you definitely uh one of the worst tournaments they've done um I just kind of wish they would have done a single elimination kind of deal here instead of the round robin. Like you mentioned, you, you kind of killed some future matchups here. Um, and I, I just felt like the crowd kind of died with having that, that main event back-to-back and then Hiromu and Bushi not really winning, uh, not winning that second matchup. So, I don't know. Yeah, but, you know, it's the junior tag team title, so it really doesn't matter. <laughs> That's true. Um, also on the September 11th show, there was the rematch of the Never Openweight Six Man Tag Team Title Match with the champions Goto, Ishii, and Yoshihashi defending against Okada, Sho, and Toriyano. Yeah, you guys might not know this, but Ishii and Goto are also Never Six Man Tag Team Champions. I know they're not wearing the belts out to their singles matches during the G1, but they are champions. But uh, the way you would know for sure, Yoshihashi is always going to wear his belt out to the <laughs> out to his <laughs> matches. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I really enjoyed this matchup. It wasn't I don't think it was as good as the actual tournament finals, but it, it was pretty close. It was a really good matchup. Good matchup. They're not going to be able to live up to the hype of the emotions of the first match, but still very good. Yeah, so I think that's one of the ones if you haven't watched it yet, you can definitely kind of go out and your way just Watch it. It's a really good matchup. Those guys, all six of those guys, work really well together, and a lot of the focus was on Sho and Ishii, and their interactions were incredible. So um, let's talk real quick about New Japan Strong. We had uh, two two weeks, Fighting Spirit Unleashed Night 2. ACH and TJP defeated Adrian Quest and Logan Regal. Rocky Romero defeated Danny Limelight. The Gorillas of Destiny defeated David Finley and PJ Black. And then... Kenta defended his right to challenge for the U.S. title, his briefcase. He defeated Jeff Cobb, 17 minutes and 57 seconds. Uh, overarching thoughts on this evening? Overall, it it was an okay night. Um, I mean, ACH and TJP, they, were, they worked really well together. They're a really solid team. I think, you know, if we could get, like, more people in Japan, you want to do some junior tag stuff like ACH and TJP would be a pretty cool team to get in the mix there. Um, told a little story of Rocky and Dane Limelight, so it, it might seem like Dane Limelight might eventually come under Rocky's wing, wings after Rocky defeated him. Um, G.O.D. get the win here. Um, you know, with P.J. Black kind of being featured a lot on Strong, I think they would be doing more of him, but just seems to kind of be, you know, on the losing end of things, and it was just, you know, nine-minute kind of so-so match. Um, then the main event was uh, pretty bad here with Cobb and Kenta. Uh, Cobb selling on the, the knee injury and Kenta just kind of cheating, stalling, a lot of shenanigans. Um, interference, Chase Owens was out there as a ref bump. It was, it was a hot mess. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Um I thought the first two matches of the night were pretty good. The second half of the show I wasn't a huge fan of, um, but the main event was especially egregious. 17 minutes, 57 seconds. I was anticipating maybe a little G1 preview here, and this was 
I thought this was level like a level below their previous match that they had during the the tournament um, for the New Japan Cup of USA. So not a fan. Um, too much shenanigans, and yeah, le- left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, honestly. Yeah, there was a question from Highest Fly Flow. It says, do you think Kenta's matches are ruined by interference? Been watching his matches from last G1, and they are just so good. I Well, he wasn't a heel last year, so he was, you know, now he's trying to employ some of those heel tendencies, tactics. Also, uh, we don't know what kind of, like, shape, you know, where he's at as far as physicality. I know last year he tried to do a lot more things physically in the tournament that maybe didn't work out so well for him. So I'm just kind of like, ah... Don't know, but you know there is a heavy reliance at this time on the Bullet Club, you know, mo. So, right, and I mean interference could definitely bring anybody's matches down. And like you mentioned, he's not. We saw in his match with um, the G One um, against Goto. I mean, it wasn't the Wrestle Kingdom match, but he was definitely more hard hitting and less shenanigans, no interference, and it was a pretty good matchup. So this most recent episode, we are now on the road to Lions Break Crown, which is going to be a uh, tournament amongst some of the um, you know young up and coming stars of you know kind of unproven talents of uh, New Japan Strong. So the people that are involved in that tournament started in, on the first match of the night in a uh, eight man tag. We had Adrian Quest, Clark Connors, Danny Limelight, and Logan Regal defeating the team of Barrett Brown. Blake Christian, Jordan Clearwater, and the DKC. So a nice little showcase, you know, preview match there. After that, we had PJ Black and Rocky Romero defeating Fred Rosser and Mysterioso Jr. 12 minutes and two seconds. And the main event saw the Grills of Destiny defeat ACH and Alex Zane. Yeah, once again, just kind of, uh, I mean, the matches were fine. I mean, if you miss this episode of Strong, you're, you're really not going to miss much. Um yeah, this was a very so-so show. Um, it, it wasn't bad. All the matches were decent, but there's just nothing really. I mean, the first match was a preview for a tournament. There was no real, like, emotional factors. There wasn't any, like, you know, people attacking each other, promos. There's nothing like that. It was just, here's the guys. You get to see them work. Nice little preview match. Sort of like a road to show. Uh, I, I actually, for the, the, the match of the night that I liked the best was PJ Black and Rocky Romero against Fred Rosser and Mysterio. So junior kind of a styles clash there. Um, but I thought they told a good story and then, um, main event here, ACH and Alex Zane against grills of destiny. Interesting match. Um, while God is kind of, you know, in the U S and, and the G one sort of happening and those guys are over there, they're kind of just show, showcasing them as being the most dominant, tag team in new japan and they're just racking up win after win over makeshift teams here in new japan strong so that's kind of the story that's going on like they're just dominating everybody and uh, especially tangaloa hitting the ape shit on everybody it kind of reminds me of like this is probably what would be going on on the undercard of a g1 anyways if they were here in japan they would be picking up wins each night with tangaloa picking up he tangaloa would be easily winning the c block Right, and we saw we see that a lot. Like they definitely heat up Tangaloa in this team, and he ends up getting a lot of the falls here. You know, they tried to go for the super power bomb, but that failed, and he he ended up to use the uh, the ape shit, the Rikishi driver, to put away uh, Alex Zane. Yeah. Um, before we move on, any big thoughts on this? Uh, what is what is this tournament called? It's called the Lions Break Crown. 
any any I, I don't have any thoughts on it. I mean, what are your what are you thinking? Um, I mean, I just wish that there's maybe some more stakes to it. Like they haven't even announced, you know, what the winner is getting. I wish there might have been some more promos, a little bit more hype to it. I feel like they just kind of threw it out of nowhere. Uh, That's crazy, Jeremy. They said that they're getting a golden opportunity. <laughs> Did you not listen? They're going to get a chance to reach for the brass ring. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we don't know what they're winning. We don't know what it is, which is fine. But um, you're right. Like, there's been no reason to really invest. The only guy that you can really invest into is Clark Connors, and that's not even if, – if Clark Connors didn't have his previous uh, – showcases within new japan he would just be another guy too so yeah we did have a, a comment on this from rainbow and slam pigs it's not a question doesn't really need to be addressed but thought i would add the last week i was kind of speculating the lion's crown project whatever tournament might turn njpw strong back toward more of what i liked about the lions break legend shows after learning the details i withdraw that opinion i kind of don't have it in me to watch strong when we have so much glorious real njpw action to feast on with the g1 yeah, I, I would agree with that. And you know what? We're about to get – that's going to kind of wrap up our reviews and previews. We're going to go into the news here. Maybe this is a good segue for me to kind of discuss what's going on over and bring up honor real quick. Well, real quick before we do that, I just want to talk about – so the Lions Break tournament does start this coming up Friday. We have Logan Regal versus DKC, Clark Connors versus Jordan Clearwater, Danny Limelight versus Barrett Brown, and then the main event will be Adrian Quest versus Blake Christian. So go ahead and okay. uh, talk about the uh, the ROH Pure Tournament. So right now, ROH is, uh, you know, they had planned to do a, to crown a new Pure Champion, um, a title that they had run for a few years in the early to mid-2000s, and then uh, they got rid of it, unified it with their world title. They decided to resurrect the belt and bring it back, and they were going to run this tournament just prior to COVID happening. And... Um, you know, now that Ring of Honor is starting to run shows again, they what is it? Is it a sixteen or thirty-two man tournament? I think it's sixteen. I think it's sixteen. Yes, yeah, so they've got a sixteen-man tournament, and they've kind of completely overhauled their television presentation. Obviously, with the fact that they're doing empty arena, um, they're kind of just now starting to come back. They're two episodes in. I've been keeping track of it. One of the reasons I've been keeping track of it is because. They they do have New Japan contracted wrestlers like Rocky Romero and um, David Finley, David Finley involved in the tournament, which is interesting. But also because I, I was hearing really good things about this tournament, and when I kind of contrasted it from to what New Japan Strong is, I was like, oh my god, other wrestling companies need to be doing what Ring of Honor is doing. And I can't remember the last time I said that statement because <laughs> um, we've been down on Ring of Honor for years, but. The basic gist of it is like they have because it's a pure tournament, they have literally gone so far in this in in the uh, way of like making this a sports centric presentation. So, you know, basically each episode is two matches that are from the tournament, and before the matches happen, they do a promo video with each individual, where each individual say says who they are, what their background is within the company outside of the company what their motivations and goals are within are within the tournament what this tournament means to them what a loss would mean to them and basically just that's it that's the gist of them if you've ever watched the ufc and you've ever seen 
on a UFC pay-per-view when the guys give the pre-match like interviews or they used to do that anyways. That's exactly what this is like. After those guys do that, you get like you basically get invested. You learn who they are, what the stakes are, even though there's no stakes, you know, it's just a tournament match. You know, New Japan does tournament matches all the time. Guys lose, they come and go, bada bing, bada boom, that's it. But instead here you get a little backstory and you're like, oh man, there's a lot on the line for both of these guys because they're real humans. Here's the story. Mm-hmm. And then and then the the presentation is so good, you kind of think neither guy can really afford to lose. So when one of them does lose, it means a lot more. And then they're wrestling in front of an empty arena. The matches are good, but I wouldn't say they're like blow away. But because of the fact, like it doesn't matter that, that there's no crowd. The fact of the matter is that there are stakes there because you learned the story and now you're really invested. So when it all plays out, you're like, Holy crap. <laughs> and I think it's too, just, it, it helps with it's that, that pure style that you're doing. It's more sports centric and with the action, so much focus in the ring, you kind of forget the crowd's not there. That is definitely part of it. And we kind of alluded to some of that when we were watching the uh, new Japan cup in Japan. So there is that essence there, but I think the, the story itself actually does more to make up for the fact that there is not a crowd. You know, one guy says, this is what, it, this is what's going to happen to me if I lose. And this is what's going to happen if I win. And then the other guy says the same thing. And now, now you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> like neither guy can afford to lose. So now you're tied in. It doesn't matter. I mean, yes, it's sports centric in the style, but not everybody in this tournament can work that style. For instance, Dave Finley's in this tournament. He cannot work sports centric style. Um, but anyways, these matches have been really good. Uh, they're two episodes in, I would highly recommend that you catch them. Um, they did have a match between Rocky and Rocky Romero and Dave Finley, a uh, spoiler alert, Rocky Romero lost to Dave Finley, which I was very surprised about, but, um, the tournament's been great. But the reason I bring it up a, aside from the fact that our guys are there is just because new Japan strong is presenting itself like a sports presentation, but they're still, all these ref bumps and all the, you know, they're, they're, they're adding the shenanigans, but not having enough, like what we talked about the previous weeks, stakes, promos, character work, reasons to care. Like they had an eight man tag with all these guys that are going to be in this tournament. I don't know who any of them are and I don't care. And I know that they have like, what, what's the thing afterwards with Kevin Kelly? The, uh, the finish strong with uh, Chris Charlton. Okay. They got finished strong, but it, you know what? Like they have a lot of, like ec- extra things like that, but they're already a niche product with only so many people are going to tune into the show. You got to find ways to incorporate that storytelling into the show. I'm not saying that they should do exactly what uh, Ring of Honor is doing, but sometimes you got to do a little bit of that. You need to have some story pieces on the guys, especially the ones you really want to push, so we can figure out who they are, what their motivations are, what their character is why any of this really matters so we can get invested um it's just basic basic wrestling stuff uh also they've got stats remember when AEW said they're going to do stats <laughs> the stats that AEW does are shit compared to the stats that ring of honor is doing on these uh presentations they're really cool <laughs> so yeah if you guys haven't checked out the ring of honor stuff i'd highly recommend it and i think anyone hey new japan if you're listening because we know you guys do you need to talk to your friends over in ROH, watch what they're doing, and then steal everything that they're doing and bring it over to Strong. Yeah, I would definitely prefer less matches in place to get some profile pieces 
on a lot of these newer guys. I mean, you know, guys like Adrian Quest and Jordan Clearwater and the DKC and all these guys. It's like, yeah, they do the podcast stuff, but I want to be able to watch Strong and learn about these guys on Strong. So I would definitely love for them to have these kind of profile interview pieces, give these guys more time to talk. We want to know these guys so that we can actually care about them. Look, I'll, I'll put it to you this way, Jeremy. I know we both watch AEW, and I know you're a big fan. They've done some some profile pieces, and they've gone a long way. But like, I would say these profile pieces are way better than anything AEW has done. You know, you see like the Darby Allen stuff, and he kind of talks cryptically, and you kind of learn a little bit about his character, and they look great. But at the end of it, you're like, okay, what was that? What did I watch? On ROH, they did one with Dalton Castle. You know I don't even like Dalton yeah, Castle. I, I did see Dal- the Lethal and Castle pieces. Dude, Cat, this is the that Castle, Dalton Castle and uh, Jay Lethal match is the most I've ever been like invested in Dalton Castle because he he was like, this is who I was. Here's my background. I was a champion. People think I'm just a joke because I'm this flamingo, but I'm way more than that. I'm a badass. I was the world champion. I'm you know, I'm trying to get back to where I was and show the world that I'm still a great wrestler and this is the perfect way to do it. And I was like, he can't lose now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is, the, this is the most, like, this is the most I've ever bought in to Dalton Castle. And I don't even like Dalton Castle. So I'm like, I don't understand why wrestling companies can't do stuff. So-. Like, I remember when uh, the first night of AEW, they did something similar to this with um, Sammy Guevara. They've done a lot of great stuff with Sammy Guevara since then, but to me, that was the the most I'd ever been invested with to into Sammy Guevara was that match before uh, before he fought Cody, when he was like, "This is the biggest match of my life." Sometimes that's all you have to do in wrestling. This is the biggest match of my life. Oh shit, it's the biggest match of his life. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard all the time, right? So yeah, so that's the ROH Pure Tournament. You guys can check that out on Honor Club. I believe they're also it's up. Somewhere else I've been seeing for free also. Remember, uh, uh, it's on Fight TV. It's also on uh, ROH Wrestling. It's pretty much everywhere. Do you remember when, when Danny Limelight fought uh, Rock Romero? What if they had just done a little, like, one to two minute video where Danny Limelight, like, was, instead of just Kevin Kelly telling us why the match was important, Danny Limelight was like, you know, here's here's why I want to beat Rocky. I'm just like him, but I'm younger. This is the biggest, you know, this is the biggest match of my career. Then I could have really bought in. Instead of just having to hear it from Kevin. Right. They need to do that on Strong. It's important they do that. Yeah, so, yeah, hopefully we'll see some Or kind at of... least let the guy cut a promo. It doesn't even have to be a video package. Right. Let them, let them talk. Do yeah. something. Yeah. So, uh, moving on, other NJPW news. So, the, the Power Struggle Tour was announced. So, that tour will be running from October 23rd to November 7th with the big Power Struggle show. Closing that tour off in Osaka, November 7th. Uh, we talked about the Lions Break Crown Tournament already. Uh, Yen Press has announced the acquisition of the Magnus Series New Japan Academy, a series that's about a teenage version of Tatsuya Naito, Kazuchi Okada, and Hiroshi Tanahashi, and other stars of New Japan Pro Wrestling. First volume is scheduled for an October release across digital platforms. Are, are you going to cover that for the show? Uh, I'm not, but I would be interested in checking <laughs> it out. I know that there is a segment of the fan base that are ecstatic about this but there's nothing that could interest me less than a manga series about new japan pro wrestling give give me an anime or nothing else 
Yeah, I'm more of the the, the anime guy than the, the magna magna guy. So, but but I still wouldn't watch this manga if <laughs> if it's about Naito and Okada and Tanahashi as teenagers in a high school. No, fuck off. Come on. <laughs> um, Alex Zane has been out of it with, uh, out of action with a hip injury, so he uh, messed his hip up on the boardwalk bump he took against uh, Joey Janela on one of the GCW shows. Dude, there's people who are listening to this like they're like who. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, but we got some random questions here. We're gonna go through real quick. Yep. So uh, from Dom Homie One Hundred One, which of one of these predictions could actually happen? Naito winning the whole tournament or Yujiro ending up with zero points? Um, I don't think Yujiro is gonna end up with zero points. I think Naito winning the whole tournament is more likely. Did we talk about that last week? Uh, I'm wondering. I think actually we might have gotten to his questions last week, and I copied them over. Yeah, I think we did answer all his questions last week. Um, yeah. So moving on to uh, rising. Maybe not. I don't think we went through all of his questions. Like, I don't think we talked about this Jeff Cobb one. Yeah. So let's start here. So he says, will Jeff Cobb redeem himself from last year's she won? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, so far, uh, first match in the books. I mean, it's been fine. Nothing like you mentioned, nothing that really stood out from his previous G1. So. He was in a fantastic uh, block last year, but this is like the killer block to be in with killers. And so we're going to learn a lot about Jeff Cobb and what what he's learned in the past year. So I think that he could definitely redeem himself this year in this G1. He also asked, what could be the big upsets that we will see in this year's G1? We kind of already got asked that earlier in the show. We kind of addressed it. Um Next question is, which is more likely to take place, Kenta in the G1 final or Shingo in the G1 final? Uh, I would lean more towards Shingo than Kenta. I would lean more towards Kenta if you want my honest opinion. Really? Yeah, I think that I don't think Kenta is going to win the G1, but could he get to a final? Yes, but I, I don't see Shingo where, given everything we know about his block and his, who he's wrestling on the fight on the final night. I think it's highly unlikely that he actually wins the block. It's not impossible, but it's way tougher. Kenta. That's true. Kenta's facing Naito on the last night, right? He's fighting Naito on the last yeah. night. The only two other guys got to worry about are Sonata and Evil. Uh, I don't see any reason why Kenta couldn't win the block. Yeah, you're right. That makes a lot more sense. Um, next question. Who needs to step up in this year's G1 Climax? Oh, we talked about Jeff Cobb. I think he's a guy that needs to step up. Yujiro. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't think that's happening. <laughs> just, just, just for the sake of having good matches. That's yeah. like just so I don't have to sit through shit. Uh, I think Evil could be a guy that could step up. Yeah. Uh, I mean Taichi. I mean Taichi doesn't really. He's in a, a killer block, and he could have some really great matches the rem- remaining of this tournament. Uh, the other the other answer is Naito. Mm. It's really important that Naito really have some great matches uh, during this year's G1 to kind of validate where he's being placed in the pecking order within New Japan. The other one's Okada. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Given given the year that he's had, he's someone that really does need to step it up. Those are the t- probably the actual two answers, Naito and Okada for me anyways. Uh, so the next question from Raising Falcons, uh, does Phantasmo not being in New Japan elevate Ishimori's status to what it once was in New Japan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when 
for me personally speaking, had there been, and we talked about this off the air, had there been a super junior, I think Phantasma would have been my favored like person to win the tournament. And I think that he's in line for IWGP junior title shot or title reign. And the fact that he hasn't been here is completely elevated Ishimori. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we probably would have seen them in like junior tag stuff as well. Um, so obviously yeah, without him, def- definitely gives you a shine on Ishimori kind of being the only, um, you know, good junior in Japan right now for the Bullet Club. Absolutely. Uh, next, next question from uh, Jason Chisholm at Bad Bo- Badada Bone. He said, the Japanese commentator referred to Desperado's counter of Gato's brass knuckles as a cross counter. Does this mean he is an Ashita no Joe fan? Can Gato survive this? <laughs> That's a great question. And uh, it absolutely does mean that they read and watch Ashita no Joe. I, I don't, so I totally missed that reference. It's just, it's it's a boxing technique. They call it the cross counters. Basically, when you're throwing a cross punch at someone when they're coming in. Um, I forget who uses that. I think it might be... Well, it's a sheet of note. I think Joe used it, and then in the Epo series, I think it's Miata. I don't know, but yeah. Uh, next question here from Viking Pains. It has been recently revealed that Rusev's AEW contract allows him to work for New Japan, too, and he's made references on going to Japan on his streams before, but unless he's willing to work small tours like in Hokkaido and not just big ones like Wrestle Kingdom or Dominion and is actually committed to New Japan long-term, I don't want to see him or any, any more AEW part-timers in New Japan taking spots away from full-timers. Thoughts. Well, um, I mean, that's a great thought, you know, but at the end of the day, it's a business and I personally, I'm completely fine. If, if they have a big star, that's going to put butts in seats, that's going to give us fresh matchups that we've never seen before and keep things interesting, especially if it's going to quote unquote, open the forbidden door, I'm fine with it. Now, I'm not sold on the idea of Rusev, Machka, Miro coming to New Japan and putting on bangers. (laughs) I don't know about that. The best man. uh, Huh? The best man. The best man. And you know what's funny? Every guy that like signs one of these like contracts where they're allowed to work other places, they keep mentioning like, I'm allowed to work New Japan. (laughs) And they like never show up. (laughs) Well, you know, we're in the middle of a COVID situation, but like Brody Lee has mentioned it. I think FTR has mentioned it. Uh, Miro has mentioned it. Uh, obviously, we know for a fact that the Good Brothers are signed to Impact and they're allowed to come, and I anticipate them coming. But, uh, you know, it's it's just funny. Like, Kenny Omega is allowed to, but it doesn't mean they're coming. Right. Um, but, you know, do I need the – I'm actually more fine with them just coming in and being showcased – wrestlers provided they do business as opposed to like do i want to see rusev work road to power struggle i don't know man not really (laughs) my my whole thing is if they're gonna come do that then they need to be like full-time guys and like really be ingrained with the product like if they're not gonna i'd rather them not be ingrained in the product come over draw eyes from the AEW crowd back over to new japan bring you know generate some subscriptions to new japan world and that sort of thing like i don't need you know Brody lee or 
Brody King or whoever it is to necessarily be a full-time member of New Japan. Like I'm fine with them crossing over and doing a, a big time, you know, money match, you know, whatever that may be. Right. I definitely think yeah, it's, it's beneficial for subscriptions, for fresh matchups, for, you know, for drawing. Like there's so many benefits for having the AW guys kind of pop over uh, for big matchups. I'd be fine with New Japan guys working some spots over in AEW too. And I'm not even talking about a talent exchange or official partnership or anything like that, but we're kind of seeing that across the wrestling world and other companies, you know, all over the U S right now, just because of the uh, pandemic. Why not? Why not just let someone show up? Like it was cool when Jeff Cobb did that, like two episodes, you know, shot with AEW when they were trying to sign him, you know, why not be able to do something cool like that? You know, what if like, uh, MJF had like some something where he needed, you know, backup, and then I don't know. He brought in Balak Fale. <laughs> well, maybe not Fale, but somebody else. <laughs> no, but like I'm just saying, like yeah. he brings him in for like an insurance policy or some shit like that. I don't know, or like, or he brings in God. Yeah, and God fucks up somebody for him. Like I don't know, something like that. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, maybe he's he's feuding with the Bucks, brings in God. It doesn't have to be a big money match. I'm not talking about Okada and, and Omega, although I wouldn't be opposed to that. I'm just saying, like, there's nothing wrong with that sort of thing happening. Yeah. So uh, last set of questions here from the Maple Leaf Wrestling History Podcast. So first he asks, do you guys remember WCW in February of 97 wanting to buy New Japan? Was that a work or a shoot, brothers? Because I really don't know, and I thought WCW and New Japan were already done working together. Uh, Yeah, so... Did you ever hear about this, Jeremy? I did not. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, they were completely working together in 1997. In fact, their relationship had been um, pretty tumultuous up until the time that Eric Bischoff sort of uh, – he kind of repaired things, I don't know, 95, 96, 96. It's definitely like towards the tail end of 95. They were working together pretty extensively again. So, and they were still working together in 97. I mean, the whole NWO angle was happening. They were doing big business together. So, and that continued on through 98, if I recall correctly. But anyways, um, obviously WCW is doing some of their biggest business ever. New Japan's doing pretty well at the time as well. I remember in the observer, Dave talked about how there were reports that Eric Bischoff had made public comments on either like a press conference or maybe like uh, a question and answer session on, on the internet where he discussed that they were either looking to now, I don't think they were looking to buy new Japan outright. Cause I don't think that would have been possible, but they were looking to buy uh, a major stake in new Japan, like to invest in them or on the contrary, WCW was looking to expand to Japan and to start their own wrestling company, like maybe like WCW Japan, basically, and to partner with New Japan in that endeavor. So those were like the two ideas. And they did have official meetings at the time um, with officials from both parties uh, about moving forward with one of those two things happening. There were issues, though, when it comes to the politics because – 
one of the contr- major controlling interests within New Japan, and at the time, New Japan had a lot of different owners. They're a public company. Uh, I forget who it was, but there was there was a media mogul who was one of the largest um, competitors with Ted Turner, who obviously owned WCW. And if the two of them were to both co-own a wrestling company together like New Japan, it would have been a huge like conflict, and I don't think that was possible. So ultimately, it didn't ever happen, and I don't know why it didn't happen. But um, probably because New, like WCW's like uh, financials went to shit very quickly after this period. <laughs> but um, yeah, this was definitely a real thing. It was not a work. I mean, if it was a work, then it would have been mentioned. I mean, it wasn't something that was an angle on TV or anything. Gotcha. Uh, his next question is, isn't, isn't New Japan owned by a Japanese gaming company? Any speculation or guess as to why they haven't got, tried getting back in the market? My buddy was telling me there's a Wrestle Kingdom game on PS2 and Fire Pro just licensed NJPW guys, so it just got me curious. Um, who owns New Japan? Bushi Road. Is Bushi Road a gaming company? I know that they've done some games re- like but I didn't think that they themselves were a, uh, like, I thought they were just like an entertainment company. That's what I thought too. I didn't think that they were video. I mean, cause there's like Bushi road sports where they do like the kickboxing stuff. They now have stardom and stuff like that. Cause uh, I mean, when someone talks about a gaming company owning them, I think of the old days when Ukes owned them and obviously they were sold from Ukes. Um, Bushi road Inc is a Japanese entertainment company produced, Producer of collectible card games and trading cards, mobile apps, games, promotional items, many other venues. So they're sort of like a uh, – they have a lot of different venues. I know that they have some games like that Dream Bang Girl Slam, whatever that right, shit yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if they're looking to get into video games again. Yeah, I'm not quite sure yet why there have, hasn't been a new New Japan game to come out. Well, they've got the card game. They did have a mobile game a couple years ago, but they it was shit, and they got rid of it. Um, there were two Wrestle Kingdom games, but those weren't even really New Japan. That that was um, those were games that were licensed independently, just using the Wrestle Kingdom name, and then they were able to license wrestlers from All Japan, New Japan, and Noah simultaneously, which is pretty cool back in the day. But uh, the closest thing we have is the Fire Pro licensed game. Right, so. which Fire Pro is awesome. So if you want to play with New Japan guys, check out uh, Fire Pro. But I would love if they came out with a New Japan game. Yeah, that would be dope. Yeah. Uh, he also asked, since you guys watched G1 in its entirety, and God bless you for it, what can you remember being your favorite Dark Horse matches, matches that you came into very low or no expectations for and left just blown away by? Oh, man, I don't know. Um... Well, I think Archer and Osprey from last year was one. Yeah, but I don't know. I was expecting that match to be good based off of what they did in New Japan Cup. I was really blown away, and no one talked too much about it, but Archer and uh, Abushi last year like was mm. just fucking rad. It was. Dude, Archer had a lot of good matches in the G1 last year. He did. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any matches that like blew me away. I know like the one match that you've brought up many times that's really good, Kojima against uh, Yoshihashi. No, it's Nagata and Yoshihashi. Oh, that's right. I think there's a Kojima-Yoshihashi match that's really good too, though. 
but yeah, that that was going to be the one for me. It was the first like G one I ever watched. Started watching. It was Nagata and Yoshihashi, like the opening matchup of the block or whatever. I, I, oh I, man, I, you know what's really great? Ishii against Tenzan during Tenzan's very last uh, G one. It's like four and a quarter, maybe four and a half, and it's super violent. And it's like the last really great Tenzan single performance. That one, like, I didn't expect much from because it's Tenzan and he's old, and it yeah. was awesome. Um, so his last question here, he says, before the G1 Climax, it was the original IWGP tournament that defined NJPW, correct? Well, did anything predate that, or was the IWGP tournament the first tournament in company history? Just curious if they did anything else, or if Inoki was the only selling point. So, y- yes, okay, so... <laughs> um. Before New Japan and All Japan, there was the JWA, and they ran an annual round-robin tournament, or maybe it was single elimination some years, I don't know, but it was called the World Big League. And that was the direct you know, predecessor to the Champions Carnival and the various different tournaments that New Japan would run. Uh, New Japan only started doing the G1 Climax in 1991. Prior to that, they had an annual tournament um, – it started off as the World League initially, and then after about three or four years, they changed it to the MSG League. And it, part of that, I think the reason they changed it to MSG League was because of their close association with WWF at the time. And it was sort of like the best of WWF and the best of New Japan. So it was the MSG League. And then they got rid of the MSG League in favor of the IWGP which was the International Wrestling Grand Prix. If you ever think about what a Grand Prix is, a Grand Prix is a large tournament, you know, and that's what it was. The winner of that tournament, uh, well, the winner of the inaugural tournament, which was Hulk Hogan, he won the IWGB title. From that point going forward, the rule was whoever won the tournament would get a shot at the previous year's, you know, champion winner. So, um, it was always like a tournament that where if you won it, you got to fight the champion. Um, they did that until 1988. And then in 89, they stopped doing the IWGP and then they moved to what was called the World Cup of Wrestling. And it was like the best of New Japan against the best of um, like Soviet Russia. And it was like Russian wrestlers that Inoki was working with. And then. 1990 they didn't have a tournament and then they started the g1 in 1991 so they actually had like 14 or 16 similar g1 predecessor tournaments starting in 72 or 73 going up to 89 so um they had a lot of tournaments that like the g1 goes way back i mean and it if you if you count it going back to jwa we're talking like going back to the 50s wow Every every single every single Japanese wrestling company has some form of major tournament, and not only does wrestling have this, but every Japanese rest or MMA company, whether it was Pride, Rings, Pancrase, what have you, because of MMA coming out of pro wrestling, they also all have Grand Prix tournaments that all come from the World Big League from jwa they're all derived from that it's all the and the, the idea is always to prove who is the greatest fighter or wrestler in the world always boom 
There's your little G1 history for you. So the last thing we got to do here is the recommended match of the week. And last week, Chris Samson recommended to us to watch a G1 Climax final from August 17, 2003. June Akiyama taking on Hiroshi Tenzan. I knew that our week would be busy. So when he gave us the recommendation prior to the show airing or recording, I actually watched the match ahead of time. <laughs> ahead. Because <laughs> I'm ahead. But, uh, I mean... This match is one that I remember being really good. Uh, I went back and watched it. Um, I, I This is one that's awesome because it's in that period in 2003 where um, New Japan still had a working relationship with some of the outside companies. And it was you know in the middle of sort of like the heat of Inokiism. But New Japan's business hasn't really gone down yet. They're still doing big business. And Jun Akiyama comes over from NOAA and it's a big deal because it's like, you know, uh, it's just a big deal because he's this outsider who's gone through the whole tournament, made it to the finals. And you got Tenzan sort of defending the honor of new Japan pro wrestling against this foreigner and this foreign outsider, I should say. And I, I, this is a match that I thought was just so freaking awesome. I mean, it's totally different style from what you see in, in new Japan today, but Anyone who watched it or is thinking about watching it, I would recommend it just to see how great Tenzan was in his day and to kind of see the the clash of styles between Akiyama representing that classic King's Road, you know, Giant Baba philosophy versus Tenzan being, a uh, you know, Inoki strong style dojo boy. You, you've got a lot baked into there, not just promotionally wise, but ph- philosophically with the styles of wrestling they have. And Tenzan throws everything like the the match goes back and forth and has great moments but towards the end once once Tenzan like has Akiyama hurt he's throwing everything that he can at him every finisher every big move and Akiyama's just overcoming it and then at the very end you think Akiyama's gonna come back and he starts like throwing his stuff and then finally Tenzan finally finally puts him away it's 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 a war uh you know, I think you'd have to temper your expectations. It's definitely not, you know, a 2020 style wrestling match. But man, I love this match. Yeah, even though yeah, it's not the 2020 style, but it's still really good. Uh, Jun Akiyama's out here throwing V triggers the whole match, just killing, yes, killing Tenzan with these jumping knees and uh, pulling on the knee pad, jump on, jump on him. Uh, crowd was super behind Tenzan. Also, he's the home, you know, New Japan guy that want him to defeat this invader Jun Akiyama. They're super behind him. He was super over here. It was a crazy spot where Tenzan did like it looked like he was doing a, a backdrop and like Junakiyama landed right on his head on the apron. Um, that was a crazy spot. Uh, uh, June was also killing him with T-bone suplex throughout the match. Um, Tenzan hit the moonsault perfectly for a great near fall. Very hard hitting. Um, there were some headbutt exchanges, and uh, eventually Tenzan. You know, comes back or powers him and gets the the anaconda vice for the big win. Taps him out. One of the biggest wins of Tenzan's career. Um, yeah, and he was sort of like one of the. He actually not was. He is one of the greatest uh, G one competitors of all time. I think he is only behind uh, Chono in all time like G one wins, which is crazy. Um, they used to call him Mr. August. So, yeah, I mean, people don't realize how great Tenzan was. From that period, Tenzan's just one of my favorites. So, uh, highly recommended. I, I enjoyed the match thoroughly. Nice. So, do you have a recommended match for us this week? 
Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a banger from the G1 Climax in 2015, G125, August 15th. We have Tomohiro Ishii versus Michael Elgin. Oh, man. And this is like, this is a match that just fucking rules. I remember the first time I saw it, my mind was blown. And I don't usually say about New Japan because there's a lot of great matches at the time, but very few of them were blowing my mind. And this match blows my mind every time I see it. I, I think it deserves way more praise than it gets. Just incredible stuff. And uh, 14 minutes, 37 seconds of sheer brutality. Nice. Looking forward to that. I always loved uh, Elgin Ishii matches, so that should be a lot of fun. They've only had two in New Japan. I know we gave a lot of praise to the uh, New Japan Cup match that they had a couple years ago. This match is better. Oh, well, I'll definitely looking forward to checking <laughs> that out then. Oh, that's going to wrap everything up for uh, us this week here on Keeping It Strong Style. Next week, we'll be back to review nights uh, three through five of the G1 Climax and give you our thoughts and reviews on all that stuff. So if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping a Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Jeremy L. Donovan. The show is at KI Strong Style. Also follow us at Social Suplex. On Facebook, we're facebook.com slash social suplex. Also in the Wrestling Square Circle Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash wrestling square circle. On Instagram, we're at social suplex. You can email me, Jeremy, at social suplex.com. On Reddit, I'm the pro black guy. Josh is keeping a strong style. Make sure you check out all the other shows here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. On Sundays, we have One Nation Radio hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. On Wednesdays, we have the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show from Scotland. Uh, pretty soon, we should be having the return of Grown Men Watch This Shit on every other Wednesday. On Thursdays, we have the Grave Consequences Podcast with Caleb and Maserati. On Fridays, we have the 8-Bit Suplex with Josh Number 2 and Sandy. And Saturdays, we have All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Sweet, sweet boy, Ichiban. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. <laughs>